0: Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again.
1: Listen, everybody, I want you all to be quiet. I've got Ben's college yearbook here, and I just want to read you some of the wonderful things about Ben.
0: Hey, there's the award-winning scholar. We're all very proud
1: of you, Ben.
0: How are you, track star? What are you going to do now? I was going to go upstairs for a minute. I meant with your future. Your life.
1: Well, that's a little hard to say.
0: Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. (laughs) Aren't you? Hello, darkness, my old. Welcome back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to discussion of the greatest movies ever made, or the Essential Films. I'm Adolfo Acosta, and I am joined by my co-host, who has uh, spent the last several months of his uh, post-college life just swimming around in a swimming pool and having sex with ladies much older than him, Mr. Marcus Espinosa
1: one of those things is true one of those things is a lie i'm gonna let the audience <laughs> decide what that is so uh
0: today's episode will we be we will be discussing the graduates uh if you didn't get it from our little intro there but before we get to all that how you doing today mark
1: i'm doing pretty swell adolfo how have you been
0: um pretty good pretty good um been a while since we uh, had a discussion. We last talked uh, about two thousand one A Space Odyssey. Of course, we did just recently talk um, on Forced Perspective about some of the summer movies. But as far as we've been on this show, it's been a, it's been a couple months now. But uh, ready to get back into it with some uh, discussion on classic film, The Graduate. Now, I teased on the last episode that I am not a huge fan of this movie. Uh, so, so which goes to show that there are going to be movies that come up that I consider. Important films that people should watch, but I don't necessarily like. So the graduate is gonna is gonna fall into that that category. I think this is a movie that people should watch. Um, I think there's it does a lot of things right. And I think it's a very important film, but I have issues, <laughs> and those issues. And I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I thought I'm gonna you know when for this uh, reviewing for this episode, I thought I wonder if I'm gonna feel the same, and I. It, I yeah I feel the same. <laughs> so, um but but uh before we get into it how um uh how did you first uh, come across the gravity? what is what is your
1: history with the film Well I've always heard of this movie always heard of it never really got around to seeing it cuz I just didn't care it was that, it was that phase of my life where I wasn't I wasn't a cinephile yet and for those who've been following us the last couple of years, I might have shared this story once or twice already, but it wasn't until I took this course in uh, in college, uh, I think the, the, it w- the first course was uh, film, in, uh, film in the 60s or something like that. So it was all about 60s films. And I took that course because like, oh, I guess I get to watch movies all day. That's that was my whole understanding, right? Oh, if I get to watch movies all day, I'll just it's it's an easy it's an easy course, right? Well, it was much more than that, which I, I I appreciated the challenge, but it was in taking that course that I grew appreciation for film, not just as an art form, not just as a as an entertainment device, but as something that's a piece of a culture. If you know what I'm trying to say, it's it's a it's a product of its time. And, I mean, some of the films that we talked about in that course were In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Manchurian Candidate, and there was a few other ones that I can't remember. I could probably look it up now if I wanted to, but I don't want to, like, take up too much time here as far as this. But just those three films alone kind of speaks to the time capsule that the 60s was in terms of culture, in terms of race relations. In terms of just just overall culture, I got to say, and one of the films in this course that I had to watch, that I had to write about, that I had to actually take, you know, sit in on a class for, was *The Graduate*. So the way the course was set up was that we would have the lecture on the previous film that we watched, you know, during our during the lecture course of the day, and then the professor she set up. A screening time. So she did two things for us. In order for us to watch this film before the next class. Either she had copies made available at the library that we can take out and then watch on our own time. She had us either... She actually set up Netflix accounts for us when they were still doing the discs. Um, Yeah, this, this is how old school it is now. We're doing discs for Netflix. So she actually had us set up Netflix accounts... To actually have the film sent to us You know, either at our dorms Or at home or whatever And we'll get the films that way Thirdly, and this is the one I took advantage of Because I just like watching movies With a crowd, which is, I think that's why I love Alamo so much, because I get to revisit a lot of these old Movies with an audience And seeing it with an audience is a lot different Than seeing it by yourself at home on a couch Right? So, what she did was, she set up Screening times at one of the, um one of the big lecture halls where they have like that big projector. So she set up screenings. I think it was every Thursday night at eight o'clock. She set aside a block of time with the university to screen these films. So if you wanted to come to this, great. If you want to see it on your own, see it on your own. Right. But I like that she made that available to us. So, of course, I got on my last class around like six o'clock or something, I go to the food truck, I get a nice big sandwich, I get a nice drink, I get a um, uh, some candy to go with, like usually M&Ms, I'll walk into that lecture hall and I'll sit in for the screening. And that's how I saw The Graduate for the first time. It was that part of that uh university screening that my professor did for the course. And right before we went on the air, I actually dug into my old hard drive and I pulled out my notes from the lecture that we did the following class on the graduate now i didn't write much but i feel like what i did write on it can spur some discussion um so that's how i saw the graduate for the first time immediately fell in love with this movie ended up buying the blu-ray a few years down the road um and then criterion just i think last year just did the the blu-ray for it um definitely picked that up it was that was like a must buy once we had the uh, Criterion sales either the flash sale I forgot how I bought it either the flash sale or the Barnes and Noble sale but um that was like an instant must buy once Criterion did it and I don't know I mean I I am going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to understand where your complaints come from I really do cuz this last revisit that I did for the show I seen I saw a lot of things that I that seem odd by today's standards right but I'm not going to deny the significance of the film, how groundbreaking it is, the message that it has. I love I love the film's overall message. Like, It's taking out the Ben character by itself and what he does. The film's overall message is something that, even as someone that's not from the 60s, I can personally relate to. And I think what I find just wacky about it all is how this film... And, I, and it's perfect the way this worked out. How this film is going to relate to our next four respective episode on Five Hundred Days of Summer, because of how much the graduate as a film plays into the shaping of the Tom character played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. So I kind of just like how the kind of the stars align to kind of bring us that right because Five Hundred Days of Summer is my favorite rom com of all time. So, um, but I will not deny just how, and, and I'm sure you won't deny it either, just how significant The Graduate is, but from that first screening that I had as part of that film course in college, I just fell in love with this movie. And I've grown to love it even more ever since. Okay. Um,
0: I'll get into my feelings as we go through it, but I'll just say this. Um, I recognize that it's an important film, and I'm not going to deny that. I just have issues with, stuff that comes up. But before Mm -hmm. we get to that, um, my, my, uh, my experience is a little different. It's, it's, it goes back to, you know, I've mentioned this before. Um, uh, I was on a quest to kind of watch like all the famous movies ever, you know, about like right when Netflix first came out and, you know, I, I was renting all the different, uh, all the different, you know, movies through Netflix, all the, the Oscar award winners and AFI win, you know movies and the IMDb top two fifty and everything like that, and of course the graduate I think is probably on all those, um and the, you know, and it's a famous movie, and I wanted to see it. Um, there was a, uh, a girl that I was interested at the t- uh, at the time uh, that uh, that you know I invited over to watch it because she had never seen it either, and um. As, as we were watching it, I think we both had the same reaction about halfway through the movie when it kind of takes a turn. And <laughs> we were both like, oh, we were, I was enjoying it until now and now it's, now not so much. Um, and I, you know, and the reason I bring that up is because that was actually the last time I had seen it and that was probably over 10 years ago. Uh, it had been a while since I'd seen this film. And um, so I wondered like, when I'm watching it this time, like am I gonna think the same thing? Or was I like kind of influenced by being on a not really a date, but like by being with this girl that I was interested in, was I in, influenced in in like trying to like you know be woke, you know, <laughs> to, you know, to impress somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you know, thankfully, no, like I, I watched it this time and I felt the exact same way as I did before. Uh, cause I have, you know, i have nobody here to impress. So like it was, thankfully I was, uh, you know, 10 years ago I was, or whatever, however long ago it was, I was, uh, I was, uh, being sincere in my, in, in my, uh, dislike of the film and it wasn't just trying to impress somebody, but, uh, but yeah, that's kind of my history of it. Um, this only, I had only pretty much until recently was only the second time I had watched it because uh, I didn't like the first time. So that that's kind of basically my uh, my history with
1: it. Now, in the rewatch, did you do any of the commentaries or you just watched the film straight?
0: Uh, I did listen to some of the commentaries. Uh, with, I did the one with uh, I have the criterion. So I, I did the one with Soderbergh. Um,
1: that's and, a wacky one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> with my nickels. Yeah. Yeah, I did. It, it, I didn't. I feel like did, there, I got some trivia, but not a lot of insight, to be honest.
1: Yeah, because we were just having a. It's a lot. of It's all the stuff they really talked about is stuff that we know already. Yeah, you know, you know, and just it was just coming out of Mike Nichols' mouth instead of reading it from a book or from Wikipedia or from wherever. So, right. um, but if you want to go back, just to kind of watch it from a scholarly perspective, watch the second commentary with uh, Howard Suber.
0: Yeah, that um, I did really, not-
1: really eye-opening stuff. Like it's just, and then again. I'm watching it as he's and as he's mentioning all these things, it's like, holy crap. Like I never noticed that. Like you, you start seeing things differently. Like how deliberate a lot of these, like a lot of the blocking was of the scenes, a lot of the camera angles, how deliberate they were. And just a lot of this the tropes in the movie that you see like in other movies. Like just how closely that the film itself, even though it might not seem like it, it follows like the uh what there's a there's a phrase for, for what I'm about to say. I can't remember what it is, but it's like basically the uh a standard like the dramatic like outline for a drama you know so it might not seem like it's it, it follows like you know going back to like aristotle or you know whoever came up with you know the original like the dramatic structure but when you really think about it the way he described it yeah it's the dramatic structure to a t right and it, it's just it was very eye-opening so definitely check that up just you want to look at back on it from just as a film scholar perspective
0: yeah, I'll probably go back and check it out. I just didn't have time in, in, in our prep for this one, uh, but I did see that one, and I I,
1: I was interested in, in watching. It. I just didn't get a chance to. Yeah, and um, a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk that I'll be mentioning is straight from the commentary. For those who haven't checked that out yet, so uh,
0: so let's go, let's go down some of these stats here. Um, the Graduate was released in nineteen sixty seven. Uh, was directed by Mike Nichols, as we already mentioned, with a screenplay by Calder Willingham and Buck Henry. Ah, uh, based on the book *The Graduate* by Charles Webb, uh, starring Anne Bancroft, Dustin Hoffman, and Catherine Ross, um, and music by uh, fam- famously by Simon and Garfunkel, uh, written by Paul Simon. Um, and uh, yeah, so the the Graduate*. Um, kind of let's get into some of the background here. Uh, like we said, it was based on a on a book. Uh, by Charles Webb, he apparently he wrote it right after finishing school, um, which I can see. You can definitely see because the whole film is about you know Benjamin uh, Braddock, played by Dustin uh, Hoffman here, uh, his kind of post-college like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Post-college uh, haze of not knowing really what to do with his life, and and that's certainly a lot relatable to a lot of you know America's youth both then and now.
1: Yes. Um, one of the things that kind of struck me just kind of, I of course I haven't read the book but one of the things that kind of sticks out when you watch this movie is just it's very I want to say angsty but I don't know if angsty is the right word for it because what this film does well is that it, it speaks to the youth of the time. We're going to uh, get into a little bit of 50s culture here because 50s culture is responsible for the kind of backlash of the counterculture that happened in the 60s. And Benjamin's parents are an encapsulation of that like old-school 50s culture that kind of pushed the youth to that edge. Um, I do have some notes on Ben's parents that I took from college from that course 10 years ago. So I will be sharing that in, in a few moments when we actually get to Ben's parents. But just from the film itself, and I and I I read bits and pieces of the novel, just like little excerpts that, from articles. Um and from what I understand, it does pretty much stay true to the message of the art of, of the novel. And you just get from the first frame that this is one of those. Oh, this is not really going to be a happy, cheery film. Now, there it is a comedy. It is a comedy film, but there is an underlying darkness, my old friend, to that. Um, so that's what really I think. Just from when you first see it, you kind of just get that. Not so much an uncomfortable vibe, but it's it's not a happy, cheery vibe, and that's deliberate.
0: Yeah, it, it certainly it certainly does uh, does set that up as like. Um, as a kind of uh, angsty, I think is a is a good word for it because it, it is a little, uh, it is a little you know, you know emo, a little angsty, a little you know, uh kind of how's oh, the word I'm looking for? Very you know, like you know, it speaks to the to to that certain thing that you know that kind of what that quarter life crisis kind of thing. You're just out of college. And you don't really know what you want to do with your life, and people are asking you what you want to do with your life, and and you just don't know what to do and how to how to handle it. And and I think a lot of people. Uh, who grew up at that time or, or even later, uh, know what that, what that feels like. And it spoke to a lot of people. So, um, I, I it certainly does come off that way. It, it, this, from the second you, you first start the movie, uh, I, I think there's probably even some elements of, of, uh, depression and anxiety in here as well. I think before those terms were kind of as, you know, uh, well known as they are now. Um, right but yeah it, it certainly it it does it does a lot of that right it it really does um, so let's get a little bit in the background here before we kind of go into the main uh the main stuff and this is mostly just um some trivia stuff that I found interesting uh specifically in regards to the casting. there was a lot of people uh that wanted different roles and didn't want different roles and were or, or auditioned and didn't get the role but just to, to kind of run down the list here uh we'll go with the the uh, Mrs. Robinson first um, uh, Mike Nichols' first choice Was a French actress named uh, Jean Moreau uh, who turned it down But uh, he also uh, Wanted uh, Doris Day as well Who turned down the role because uh, She didn't want to do nudity And she was uh, offended by the by the, by the role uh, Joan Crawford mm. wanted, wanted the part And uh, Lauren Bacall And Audrey Hepburn also wanted the part uh, Interesting uh, On both of those I think I don't know if Audrey Hepburn would have worked because she's so, like, her her persona's always so sweet. I don't think yeah. I've ever seen a, a, a... Maybe that's why she wanted it, because it was a little more edgy, but Lauren Bacall definitely could have pulled this off. Um, yeah. so, uh, um, Joan Crawford, I think, may have been a little too old for at that point. Um, and uh, Patrice O'Neill, or Patrice O'Neill, Geraldine Page, um, both turned it down. Some other actors that... Uh, that they considered. Uh, I think this is kind of an interesting list: Angie Dickinson, Sophia Loren, Judy Garland, mm-hmm. uh, Rita Hayworth. Um, let's see who else: Jennifer Jones, Deborah Kerr, Eva Marie Saint, Rosalind Russell, Simone Signoret, Jean uh, Simmons, Lana Turner, Eleanor Parker, Ann Baxter, and Shelley Winters. That's I think those crucial. are all very interesting. That Judy Garland really sticks out there uh, as a as a huh. Like, because I don't know if I've ever thought of, you know, uh, Judy Garland in any sort of sexual or, or you know, way, right? Like, she's she's so, always so obviously very um uh, pure and innocent in, like, her, obviously in Wizard of Oz and in a lot of her musicals. But uh, I know she did do Judgment at Nuremberg, which is much more of an adult role. But, it's a, and, you know, she did Star is Born, which is more of an adult film. But uh, that's that would have been weird to see her try to, like, seduce Dustin Hoffman.
1: Yeah, it's just, like, it, it's a little hard to see her in any of the light now. Um, and it's not her fault. It's just, that's just the way everything fell. <laughs> and again, maybe that's why she, you know,
0: she was considered as, you know, to play against type. Um, but it's it's an interesting... It, it, the, Rita Hayworth, I could totally see. Yeah, oh, uh, definitely. Angie Dickinson, Sophia Loren, I could totally see. But... Um, yeah,
1: Judy Garland, not so much. Not so much. That would have been interesting though. Oh, definitely. I mean, just Rita Hayworth, if you've seen Gilda, like she could pull that off one hundred percent if she had gotten it. You know, that 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 seems just right up her alley. Oh man, that, that scene in Gilda. Um, oh, I know yep, I know what you're
0: talking about. Um oh, I missed one. Angela Lansbury.
1: I don't know about that one.
0: <laughs> that would have been interesting. It would have been interesting. Been um for uh for um Elaine some of the actresses considered but that were were either turned down or uh they turned it down Patty Duke Faye Dunaway um Sally Field Shirley MacLaine uh Raquel Welch Joan Collins uh Candice Bergen Goldie Hahn Jane Fonda and Margaret uh, Suzanne Plachette, Julie Christie, and Tuesday Weld. I think a lot of these actresses were way too old for the part, because these yeah. these actresses were at least late 20s, early 30s by this point. Now, granted, Dustin Hoffman was 30 when he filmed this movie, and yeah. he's playing like a 22-year-old, or 21-year-old,
1: but still, I feel like a lot of these actresses would have been too old at the time. I could I could definitely see Patty Duke doing it. I just saw her in Valley of the Dolls, so... um I could definitely see her like as Elaine. Like that would have that would have felt right, I think. Um Faye Dunaway, it's like that's a toss up for me right now. Um but nobody else. And Faye Dunaway turned down see. to go do Bonnie and Clyde. But which like is a I good think, choice. <laughs> yeah.
0: And and Faye Dunaway, like I feel like she's not innocent enough, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the the role has to be a little bit innocent and I think she's and maybe this is just the Bonnie and Clyde Working against her Like I just don't see her as like this kind of doe-eyed You know 20-year-old girl Like I just don't see it Same with like Raquel Welch Suzanne Plachette And and Margaret maybe could have done it um, But not Jane Fonda Jane Fonda I think was too old by that point I mean she'd already done Barbarella I think at this point
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean With me personally with Faye Dunaway Like all I see when I think of her Now I think of Network like and how and right. well, yeah, the language, well, how much of a bitch she is. So, um, so yeah, so that's how I equate her now. With and then of course Bonnie and Clyde. But like when I when I hear her name, I think network first,
0: you know. Right. So, okay. And I just did a quick search. I, I am wrong. Barbara came out the next year, but still, mm-hmm. I, I feel like she would have been way too old for that for Jane Fonda. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for uh, for the Benjamin character, um, they did. Uh, not as many um interesting names, but the the two ones that stuck out were Robert Redford and Warren Beatty Warren Beatty did oh, go off R- to do...
1: Redford was so wrong for that redford man I
0: know and, and then i'm gonna say i'm gonna say why in a second, but uh Beatty went off to Bonnie and Clyde Redford good did choice. did do a screen test um but Nichols apparently was like he's not an underdog enough he's too good looking and I think on the he's commentary. Right. Uh, he basically said, like, no one's going to believe that, you know, any girl would ever turn you down and, and it's like, well, what do you, and, and, he's, and he's, and he, uh, Nichols asked, uh, Redford, like, well, what do you do whenever, uh, uh you ask a girl out and she rejects you? And he, Redford goes, well, what do you mean? Because <laughs> Redford, Redford never had that problem. Enough said. Uh, enough said. Enough said, right? Um. And they got so they they got Dustin Hoffman, who was not—I um I mean, he had been in movies, but he had not. I mean, this is basically much his breakout role, and you know, he, he's not clearly a, a at that point a movie star, uh, and he was uh, not really. You know, there's a lot of kind of anti-Semitic uh, commentary about his casting in this movie. You know, like he was short and he had a you know quote unquote big nose, and he looked quote unquote Jewish, and a lot of people, uh you know, were. You know, anti-Semitic stuff. You know, so a lot of that going against him. Um, But I think it works. He works in this role, uh, even though he's shorter than uh, Catherine Ross. Um, Apparently, during an audition or a screen test, uh, Catherine Ross said that uh, that uh, he looked about three feet tall, so unkempt. This is going to be a disaster.
1: And he um, even he even admitted he was like, Oh, a girl like that would never go for me in a million years. And he was right. <laughs> <laughs> At least according to Catherine Ross. So yeah. Um, some of the names for uh
0: again, we're gonna do a little more trivia before we get into the movie. Uh I just because I always find find these casting things really interesting. Um for Mr. Robinson, uh Ann Bancroft's husband, who who we see a few times in the film, um Uh, who ultimately ended up being played by Murray Hamilton, who was the uh, mayor in Jaws. Uh, And I forgot that he was in this movie until until he popped up. I'm like, hey, it's the mayor. Um, And uh, some of the people that they thought of, uh, Gene Hackman apparently was originally cast, but then um, he wanted someone a little older. Uh, And here's some interesting names that they thought to replace him. Uh, Marlon Brando. Which I think is mm. odd, because he was a bigger star. Like this would have been such a small role for him. Right. Uh, Jack Palance, Frank Sinatra, again, a huge star. Kind of an odd, uh, odd choice for that. Walter Matthau, another big star, and Gregory Peck. Now the role is a little, um, is a little comedic. I don't know yeah. if I would have seen like Gregory Peck or Walter Matthau or Frank Sinatra, like being in the in the role i mean they've done comedy but in in a role where they're kind of the butt of the joke you know what i mean
1: yeah i can see i can see what you're saying there but as far as uh marlon brando like not really taking a small role like that i mean how much smaller can you get than jor bro
0: yeah but he was paid a lot of money <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he got top billing so that, that that's true <laughs> you're absolutely right about that but at least we got mayor vaughn yeah, mayor right. vaughn is awesome yeah <laughs> And then um,
0: last one I'll do here is for uh, for uh, Ben Ben's dad. Um, some of the people considered Yul Brenner, mm. Kirk Douglas, Jack Lemon, Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum would have been really weird because Robert Mitchum is such a menacing kind of figure, he, and he's that a man's might, man, bro. He's a man's man. But I mean, like <laughs> it, that might just be like Cape Fear and Night of the Hunter, like yeah. influencing me. But he's such a menacing dude. Carl uh, Malden. Uh, I could have maybe seen Melvin here. I can Christopher see Plummer and Ronald Reagan uh, cool. <laughs> all uh, were all considered before they finally ended up going with Mr. Feeney.
1: That's right, Mr. Feeney, bro. <laughs> Mr. Feeney beat out Reagan in something How about or,
0: that
1: for another generation. Kit. Yes, there you go. That's yeah. See the kit or Mr. Feeney's? All, uh, someone out there at least knows who we're talking about. Yes.
0: Um, and then, uh, last little bit of trivia I'll go into before we get into the movie here. Um, the two major, the two big songs from the movie, Sound of Silence and uh, Mrs. Robinson, Silence, Sound of Silence was in there by pretty much, mis- uh, not by mistake, but kind of, um, uh, not coincidence, what's what sort of I'm looking for. Kind of like- It was more, it was a placeholder, basically. It was a placeholder, um, for, for editing. And- yeah. Nichols pretty much ended up liking it so much he ended up saying no this, this song stays we're gonna keep it, and then he went to uh, Paul Simon to get more music. Um, Simon couldn't really write a whole bunch of songs for him, uh, but did say he had uh, Mrs. Robinson or at this at the time it was called Mrs. Roosevelt. So um, Nichols told him, "I ah, just call it Mrs. Robinson. We're gonna use that," which when you which is fun. I mean, it it matches because it's Mrs. Robinson in the movie. But if you actually listen to the lyrics of Mrs. Robinson, it's really make any sense with what's <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're absolutely right. That always tripped me out before I even learned about this. That always tripped me out that like you're hearing this song about, you know, who we see in the movie, right? And the lyrics don't match up to who we see in the movie. And it's just like, what? This doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah. So um before we head down to the plot, any other kind of background or trivia that you want to get into?
1: Uh, as far as background, not necessarily. I think we pretty much hit all the notes there. Um, so we can just get into the film.
0: Okay. Oh, one one last bit of trivia is... And this is a kind of famous piece of trivia, but uh, Anne Bancroft, who was uh, cast eventually as Mrs. Robinson, uh, is, you know, supposedly the uh, an older woman uh, to, uh, to Benjamin Braddock, who is a 20-year-old, 21-year-old kid, um, only six years older than Dustin Hoffman at the time. Yeah. So, um, which is interesting because they do make her look more mature and they do make him look really young. Uh, so it it is interesting that you you kind of buy it in that moment, but, um, it is funny that, that, you know, he's playing much younger and she's playing much older.
1: Yeah. And plus the way, like just down to costume design for her, the way they did her makeup, the way they did her hair, like she does look like she could be older, like way older than him very attractive, way older person than him, but nonetheless, like, they do a good job, you know, as far as, like, how they, they set her up. Right.
0: Alright, so let's let's get into the meat of the film. Um, movie uh, starts off, we're seeing uh, Ben, Benjamin Braddock, uh, coming home from college. He's on an airplane uh, as he's uh, kind of coming back from the East Coast, back to the West Coast uh, to celebrate his, his graduation. It's got a, good, got a great opening shot, Um, And again, I'm going to say a lot of good things about the first half of this film. Got a great opening shot of uh, of uh, Dustin Hoffman sitting on the airplane. He just kind of has like a like a thousand yard stare, you know, as as the plane's landing. You can already kind of tell just by looking at him that he's that this is not exactly, you know, how he envisioned his life at this point.
1: Yes, and then um, as the opening credits come on, he's on that. um, It's not a conveyor belt, but it's that like that walkway, like the people mover. There you go, Um, and it's just him, kind of with that kind of blank expression on his face, Um, but just kind of look at the. There's a few little tidbits of symbolism there. First off, he's on the people mover, but what does that do by design? Like he's not. He's not using his muscles, his strength to move. He's being moved, right? He's moving involuntarily. So again, that's kind of laying the foundation for the theme of the film. Ah, uh, so that's that. When I first caught that, it was just like, "Holy crap!" Like it's like right there in the beginning. Like the theme is right there. Like you know, he's being shoved in this direction when he doesn't want to be, right? But and then him being on, but he's the also letting who himself be moved. Yeah, right. That exactly. Yes. Right as as far as right now where he is right yes he's letting him that's he's letting that happen to him
0: right. Um, another thing I found interesting is that it really kind of brought up the imagery of the first of the opening credits of uh, Jackie Brown, which is a similar Mm -hmm. uh, opening where she's on the like the the treadmill the people who already want to call it. Um, as the credits roll over now, obviously a different kind of context for that film, but I just found it interesting. I I I have to assume that that was a. uh that was an homage to that to that
1: opening. But then look at the, uh, the the not just in like the music and the tone, but look at the difference as far as just color scheme. If I'm not mistaken, I haven't seen Jackie Brown in a while, but I think her background on the walls, it was like more colorful, it had like some which yeah, she's wearing had, like, like bright blue suit. Yeah, 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 yeah. While here it's just white, which of course, white is the color of innocence. And it's kind of foreshadowing, you know, this film's going to be not so much about innocence itself, but the loss of innocence. Ah. <laughs> uh, just, I, I just... It, it's so... I feel like it's such a lost art form now. Just just from the first, like, two minutes, Nichols loads this film with symbolism, and it's just, like, it's so easy to miss, but, like, once you watch it enough, once you kind of kind of pick up the tricks, like, it's right there in front of you. And that's what I love about, like, films like this. It's, like, you, you have all this stuff that, like, from the casual person to just seeing a guy on a people mover just go across. He's not doing anything, but, like, it's so much more than that. Um,
0: and then we, we end up, uh, our, our next shot, another great shot after the airport, is uh, him sitting in front of that fish, that fish tank. Just kind of staring again, staring off into the distance uh, before his parents come in to, like, start bugging him to go downstairs. Staring off in the distance, perfectly framed in the middle of the frame. These fish kind of swim behind him. It's just a great. It's a really, really welcome pose. Really great shot.
1: Yes, like just him having his head. Like it's leaning against the fish tank, but like just from the way it's shot, he, he looked like he's underwater. Which water is a big, you know, a big uh, motif here that he uses quite, quite often. You know, just kind of that feeling of drowning, of suffocation, of isolation. That's Ben right now. That's Ben's character in this moment. He's just being drowned by life in a way. Not so much just about, you know, his parents or his expecta- the expectations that they have of him. He's just drowning in everything. It's just life that's just keeping him down. He doesn't know what he wants to do. And it's just that kind of uncertainty is just almost kind of gnawing away at him.
0: Yeah, what I found interesting is also that, like, you know, you stay in that shot. And there's a lot of long takes in this. You stay in that shot as his parents come in to, like, talk to him about, like, hey, go downstairs, meet these people. Um, And they're, like, talking to him. They're out of focus. He's in focus. And they're just like, but they keep coming in and out of the frame, um, out of focus, kind of, like, getting in the way. Uh, And it's, it's it's really kind of distracting almost, but, like, you know, obviously intended to be. Uh, it, it just kind of just keep kind of getting in your way, and like I, I feel like that's you know, it's a good, you know, it's also kind of a good kind of what's the word I'm looking for a good kind of uh, uh, way to kind of demonstrate a state of mind, like you're just trying to be in one place, but people are just kind
1: of getting in his way. Oh, I love that scene, and because I think it's more the introvert in me that loves how that scene is shot and laid out because. I was feeling him, man. Like, he's coming downstairs. All these people are trying to come up to him to congratulate him. He's just trying to get away from all of that, you know, and then, like, people are pretty much tugging at his arm. Oh, you know, congratulations. Oh, let me tell you this. Let me give you some advice. Let me tell you this. And then from from the moment he comes downstairs to the moment that he runs back upstairs to his room, basically, it's like I feel the the suffocation because, like, I'm introverted in that way too. Like, Like, large crowds like that just kind of, they make me feel a little uneasy and he was going through that same thing, like right in that moment. And it just, you feel it, you know, if it, and one of the things that kind of makes it so timeless is the fact that a lot of aspects of the Ben character, like people can relate to at some point in their lives. And just that, just from that first scene of him coming downstairs to the quote unquote party in his honor, it's like, dude, I feel it, man. Like I'd, I'd be trying to run out of there too.
0: Yeah, and so of course we, we we see him interacting with all these like older people. Clearly, like all in his parents' generation, all of his parents' friends, he has nothing to want to do with these people. He like he feels like obviously he feels suffocated by these people, and he's you know they're just you know saying trying to get him. He's like, oh, how are you doing? Oh, this is how you blah, blah, blah. And they're kind of just, and he's got that fake ass smile on his face. Uh, And, you know, you get that kind of funny line where the dude kind of pulls him aside. It's like, I just got one word for you. Plastics. Mm -hmm. Exactly how do you mean, sir? Um, And, you know, it's a funny line because it's clearly this guy is trying to get him to, like, either invest in plastics or get into, like, plastic, uh, uh, you know, manufacturing or whatever it is, it's clearly just, like, this is what you want to start doing with your life, and it's the most boring thing you could possibly think uh, Mm of is, like, plastics, that's what you want to do with your life, plastics, it's so, it's funny, but it's also so kind of infuriating that this dude is, like, this is what you, this dude is just inviting, like, this advice on him.
1: Yeah. And in fact, I think that's one of uh, that's on the list for like AF High's 100 quotes, right? It is. Plas- it is. Just plastics. Right. So that should tell you, like, kind of the impact that that has on the film itself. It's just kind of just the blandness and the boringness that Ben is trying to get away from. Right. Um, Another thing that I love about this scene, too, is when in the middle of him trying to go back upstairs, you have his mom pretty much reading out all of his accomplishments. Like, oh, listen, look, like, he was the editor-in-chief of the newspaper. He was associate editor. He became managing editor in his senior year. But just listen to how it's it comes off, right? And I believe, and this is, I think, one of the things that started really resonating with the 60s youth at the time. Is the fact that, just kind of listen to how she says it. She comes off very phony here. Because... To me, and this is how I see it. To me, it's not about her being proud of her son. It's about holding his son, her son in front of everybody, seeing, look at how great my son is, more of like a trophy, as opposed to actually being proud of his accomplishments. Like, look at what my son did.
0: I'll, right? I'll, take it, I'll take it a little further. Instead of look at what my son did, I think it's more like, look at the parenting that I have created. Like, because of me
1: and my parenting, this is what has come of it. Exactly and that's so infuriating To hear because even the way um, Even the way that Elizabeth Wilson delivers those lines It's perfect because you can kind of It's not so much that contempt you hear In her voice it's just the phoniness of it Like you know you on the surface Yeah she's proud of her son and everything He's accomplished in college and the graduating Having all these positions that he had Like on the paper like maybe or You know whatever else he did in college But it's like you see through it though, as, as for the phoniness that it is, because it's not about being proud of her son. It's about holding him up in front of her friends and her neighbors and saying, "Ha, beat that!" Right? And it's just—it's so—it's so dehumanizing. And I'm sure a lot of '60s kids kind of felt that way. Just from that scene, they're like, "Oh yeah, my parents do that to me all the time. It sucks, and I hate them for it." You know? So, wow. Just like, it's like—it's it, that's such a powerful moment, and that it starts already just laying the groundwork for. The rebellion that's coming it's just of course, brilliant stuff and of
0: course he kind of just busts the hell out of there goes back up to his room just to get and get away from everything and of course as we as he's trying to get away from everything and in enters uh uh mrs robinson uh into his life uh well back into his life i should say because he, he knew her before um and she's basically kind of you know, she starts smoking in his room she's kind of like She's not really flirting yet, but she's certainly kind of being a little, a little coy, a little cagey with him. Uh, and if she eventually like just like, ah, she's like, I, I want to go home. Drive me home. <laughs> she doesn't ask. She tells him.
1: There's a couple of things to pick up here. First off, the way she's introduced pretty much as a nobody. Because you remember, Ben is kind of making his rounds through like all those. People. Yeah, she is in the background. You see her. Yeah, she's in the background, but kind of just look at her for a minute. So she's dressed in black. She's kind of. They focus on her kind of as alone, isolated, but at the same time, she's amongst the crowd, right? She's smoking. What? What's that? What's What's that remind you of? Like, what kind of film trope is that? She's in black. She smokes. uh,
0: She's thinking of a femme fatale.
1: There you go. That's That's from the commentary. That's from Suber. Um. So I, I didn't really pick that up initially, but I mean, it's right there. Like, it's you know, you see it now. It's like, how did I not think of that in the first place, right? So, he comes upstairs. She follows him. She tries like making small talk with him. He's not interested, of course. And but he's trying to be very polite about it. And and and, you know, here's the thing.
0: The uh, uh, again, I'm gonna say the things that I enjoy about this movie. Dustin Hoffman is really good um, at being so awkwardly polite, right? And being a wuss. Yeah, he's being. I mean, he's (laughs) clearly he's clearly in a position where. Yes, he just graduated college, and he's you know quote unquote like into adulthood, right? But he still feels like a kid because he never refers to to Mrs. Robinson by her first name. He always calls her Mrs. Robinson, you know. Uh, so like he clearly already sees her as someone who's not his not his peer, not his equal. Uh, this is his friends. I think it's his dad's partner's wife, right? So it's even though it's someone he's known all his life, he still feels like he needs to have this level of formality with her and he's trying to be polite. He clearly doesn't want her around. He just wants to be by himself, but he's still trying to be polite. And even when he's like in the in his impoliteness, he's still trying to be polite. Uh and 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 uh Hoffman's really good at that kind of awkward clumsiness uh Here, and the little like kind of whimpers he does every now and then are also kind of amusing um but yeah the the he, this whole scene where he's just like trying to get rid of her and but in like the most awkwardly polite ways
1: is very funny um yeah that yeah he's so good here, kind of just kind of emoting that awkwardness um that kind of merits the character at this stage right now um another thing to notice in this scene right before we move on to like at mrs. Robinson's house. Is if you notice, right before that scene ends, she throws his keys in the tank. Yeah. And he willingly goes and takes them out. So kind of look at that for a second. She's laying the trap. And like a fish, he's taking the bait. So here we go, right? Um, So, yeah, so he drives her home, you know, and again, like, and, and then here we go again. This is also this next part I'm about to talk about is also from the super commentary, Look at how the camera angle in that scene when he, he gets to the house and then they're walking towards the house to the door, right? Notice the camera doesn't follow them, right? It kind of stays stationary at the car. It's a very um, – it's like, it's like the film was also already trying to tell us there's danger ahead, right? And by positioning the camera where it is behind the car and not following them to the door, it's kind of – we're observing – but from a safe distance as an audience member, like, okay, like we're not following them. We know something's about to go down, but let's just stay here in the safety of the car so that we're it's like, we're not too in too deep into that. And just notice too, like now here also as super pointed this out as well. There's a little bit of a kind of, I don't know if you call it inconsistency, but notice how when they get to the door, you hear their conversation perfectly as if we're standing right next to them. But we're still, the camera wise, we're still by the car. So it's you're kind of messing with reality there a little bit. If we're really sitting by the car, we can't really hear them as well as we're hearing them right now. But again, that's just, that's a film thing. You know, it's something you kind of have to, like, suspend of disbelief. Right? Um, but I love how he pointed out the whole camera angle there. Because it's, it's really, it, you, you feel dangers coming, but we're going to stay right here and kind of in the safety of the car so that you're not really up in that yet. I mean, there's going to be times where we're gonna, you're going to be all up in the danger, but right now it's kind of, we're going to stay the distance, you know, that's, that's the safe option right now. So it's, it's, it's kind of quirky and, and when wacky, what, what Nichols is there as far as with the camera.
0: Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a really good observation. Um, and yeah, it's, it is kind of like, she is kind of drawing him, into her web, so to speak. Um, right. she gets it, she gets him in. Um, she offers him a drink at first. She gets him in saying, Oh, I, the, it's too dark inside. I, I need you to come inside while I turn on lights or some very flimsy excuse. Um, and then when he comes in, she's like, she offers him a drink. Uh, and then she clearly very much clearly starts flirting with him at this point. Um, and to the point where he utters the famous line, uh, uh Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me, aren't you? <laughs> um and he obviously said much better than that. Um but it's uh it's a very I thought the funny...
1: was... wait a minute. I thought
0: the line was Mrs. Krabappel you're trying to seduce me. Always a Simpsons reference. Um <laughs> I don't think we've done a movie without a Simpsons reference yet. I think every single one movie we've done has had a Simpsons reference.
1: Well, I mean that's a pretty famous because uh, that episode that that Hoffman did on the Simpsons, he actually went uncredited. Like we didn't know it was him. You had to just hear the voice. But like when you when you, when they threw in that like graduate reference, like okay, that has to be Dustin Hoffman. It has to be right. Um, so I had to throw that in there. Um...
0: But yes, he he delivers that famous line, and he does it in a, Not only does it deliver the famous line, it he does it in the very famous shot where he's in the background, and in the foreground you see Mrs. Robinson's leg, you know, basically taking up half the frame. But it's just a silhouette of the leg, right? Uh, and, and it's clear, and he's like kind of trapped on, in, inside of the leg. Uh, it's a very good shot and a very symbolic shot. Uh, and then as soon as he after he says it, you know, it cuts to her close up of her where she kind of she's kind of laughing at, at the suggestion. Um, clearly, And it's you know, I got to say, like, it, they do a good job of making her look much older than him, even though she's like six years older. But I think this is actually a very flattering shot of her whenever she starts laughing at his at what he just said. Uh, I don't know. It's very. Um, and, you know, I watched this movie uh, with a lot of sympathy for Mrs. Robinson instead of for Benjamin. Uh, and the that shot is just very flattering. And it, and it makes me, I don't know, it makes me like her a little more.
1: I mean, there is some intent to that, especially as you go through the film. You can kind of see like kind of the leaning, you know, of, you know, kind of giving her some sympathy. I know that there was at some point in the film, I think it was, well, we'll get to it later, but there's a scene in the film where I think, even um Anne Bancroft wanted to play it a certain well, I know Mike Nichols wanted her to play it a certain way. But then she says, Well, if we do that, then I become more of a sympathetic character and not like basically the heel I'm supposed to be, right? So there is some truth to that to that observation, but I think they wanted to deliberately kind of sh- shift that so that we're not feeling bad for her. But you know, it's a little hard not to, especially when you see the circumstances that she lives in. But kind of going back to um to that scene. I love how um, I love how Ben plays that off right afterwards. So he says the line, she laughs and then all, immediately like he goes like, Mrs. Robinson, can you ever forgive me? Like, I can't believe I ever said that. You know, can you ever forgive me for saying such, you know, something so disgusting? You like, oh, know, of course I forgive you. But he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm really sorry. Like, again, kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. He just plays that like that awkward wimp like so well. Right. And it's just it really comes off very um, it comes off very authentic here. It's just, it's just perfect.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh and then shortly after that, uh she comes up with another flimsy excuse to have him go upstairs and it's to look at look at her daughter's portrait it's in like her so bedroom. It's so creepy. Yeah. In the context now, yeah. Yeah. Uh and he's, and, it, and it's funny cuz he like it's like he goes up, he looks at it, he's like, "Okay, that's nice. I got to go."
1: <laughs> yeah. Um so one thing that Super points out during the scene when she when she takes him upstairs is that he kind of quotes uh, Sigmund Freud here, where one of the one of the things that I think he said was that the, the, the most important thing, requ- the most important things required for maturity are love and work. If you di- if you don't. Ac- and what we've noticed here, at least in ca- certain characters, like when it comes to drama, uh, to dramas, is that. One character is good at one thing, but not the other. And when you look at Ben, you know, as you go through the film, you can kind of see that he kind of doesn't fulfill both requirements for maturity. You know, um, he gets very lazy later on. Like, he, he doesn't want to do the graduate school. He doesn't want to do that. Um, and then when it comes to love, well, that speaks for itself at this point, right? So, I find it interesting that he kind of dropped that quote there, that the most important thing required for maturity are love and work, and he kind of turns it and say, well, in this instance, in and in some famous instances in film, the protagonist is either good at one thing and not the other. So, what does that say about maturity itself? And that's a very interesting thing to think about, like, if we had more time to do it, that'd be something that we could really, like, get into as a, as a good discussion, but... Um, I just find it interesting that he kind of dropped that at this point in the film.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Um, yeah. Um, and then we, as they're in this room, uh, she, she asked her, she asks him to unzip her dress at this point, not even, uh not even trying to, dis- barely disguising the, the flirting at this point, although she still denies it. She's like, well, why don't, you know, she, she keeps saying things like, you know, well, it's ridiculous that you just won't unzip my dress, blah, blah, blah. So he unzips her dress. She basically starts to get naked, not completely naked, but almost naked. And then at that point, he like, wants to get out of there. And as he leaves, she, she basically says, oh, bring up my purse, please. Uh, and which, but again, his awkward politeness won't allow him just to say no. Like right. at this point, he could just leave. Like he knows what she's doing. He absolutely knows what she's doing. Even though like he felt embarrassed that maybe she wasn't doing that before, but now he absolutely is positive she's doing that. She's getting undressed in front of him. But like he could just go. But instead, he 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 very dutifully takes the takes the purse, takes it all the way back up the stairs. He's like, "Where do you want it? Like put it in Lane's room." Goes back to Lane's room, and then she sneaks in. Close the door and locks it behind him and she's completely naked. <laughs>
1: um and as super pointed out here, no, those still images are not and Bancroft. That's a body double. Um and he would know because he spent a lot of time researching that for scientific purposes, he says. So, <laughs> um but yeah, but And let's let's not pretend that we didn't go frame by frame to to look at that back in the day. But um, but yeah, so just a little bit of a trivia there. That's not Anne Bancroft's naked body, you know, from the from the top up. It is. But like the the very split second uh, shots of like the nakedness is not her. So for those who are interested in knowing that. um, But yeah, it's a very uh, it gets she just goes full frontal with that pun intended. You know, like, you know. She goes to him, you know. I find you very attractive, and I want you to you know I'll make myself available to you anytime you want. And he's just like so awkwardly, just trying to. He'd probably jump out the window if he could at this point. Like, but he plays that so well. Like, we keep, like we keep, and we're gonna keep saying it because, you know, this is just, um, just perfect, perfect performance by by Dustin Hoffman here. It's just, that awkwardness just kind of oozes naturally out of him, and it, you know, and it's as we will see later on as far as like his career. <laughs> That's not him at all. You know, he hasn't, he had no trouble getting girls after this movie, but, um, but here yeah, he just plays in like, the point so, where
0: he so got, he, he got, he got a little bit of a Me Too backlash a little, like a year ago, I think. Yeah. Uh, for some stuff that he did in his past. So yep. uh, I don't think, I don't think people canceled. He's not canceled. I don't think Dustin Hoffman's canceled like, uh, like, uh, like Spacey uh, Spacey's canceled, but he got yeah. some heat. Um, yeah. yeah it, it's funny because, uh, this, this whole scene is really amusing because he clearly finds her attractive, and as as the audience does too, because she's a very attractive woman. Uh, and he is so he's in such that this is this woman, the woman again, who is his parents' friend, a much older woman. He is he is freaking him out, and so he's got like all these uh things going through his mind of like, okay, there is a naked woman in front of me. There, this is a much older naked woman. Not only is this a much older naked woman, this is a a woman that I've known for almost all my life. Uh, and I don't know when her husband's going to be home, and he is just in pure panic
1: mode. And he does not know what to do, and it's he plays it very well. Absolutely, just like I, we keep saying, and like I said, we're gonna keep saying, he's just. He plays that awkwardness just so well, um, it, it, and I don't, it, I don't know how we can keep like harping about it that as much, but we have to because it's just like every scene that where it, he has to kind of emote that, it's just it's done beautifully. But, but what's great
0: about this scene is as he's like trying to
1: get out of there, like saying these things like trying
0: to get out, make excuses, he's not looking at her in the eye. he's like looking at her press or looking at yes. her you know you know all her other bits and pieces, <laughs> and that, that's You're what right. makes it even funnier, yeah. Um, as she tells him that basically she's I'm gonna make myself available to you, I find you attractive, blah blah. blah. Uh, he, he we hear the uh, we hear tires come in, which by the way, she totally lied to him because she said that her husband wasn't gonna be home. Uh, but he but there he is, he's home, uh, and he busts the hell out of there, uh, and uh, goes downstairs and, and runs to like the drink that he was having earlier and starts to pretend to drink while he uh, while uh, Murray
1: Hamilton comes in, uh, comes into the house. Yes. And and then what and this is something that I didn't catch the first few times I watched it. It wasn't until this recent viewing that I actually kind of looked at their actions as opposed to just like watching and just listening to like the dialogue. I actually watched what Murray Hamilton did here and it comes up again later. Right. So if you notice. He asks them, you know, what are you drinking? You know, like, do you drink scotch? Yeah. And then he says bourbon. <laughs> Yeah. But he pours up a scotch anyway, yeah. bro. I saw it. that. I, I, I thought that was amusing. <laughs> I thought that was funny, yeah. And then it happens again later on when he comes back. I think when he comes to uh, take a lane out, like, right? So he says, you know, scotch, bourbon. He pours him a scotch again, bro. <laughs> I thought that was just kind of like a little in joke. But again, it, it speaks to the theme. It's like, you know, here's the Ben, the young man, and here's the adult Mr. Robinson. He doesn't, he, obviously he doesn't hear him because he clearly says bourbon. He pours him a scotch he doesn 't see them either, so again, that's how the youth was feeling the adults they're not seeing me for who I am they 're not listening to me, so what am I going to do i'm going to act out. maybe then they'll notice me, right So again, I took it initially as just a little joke that that Nichols did, but no, it speaks to the theme of the movie that the young people aren't being heard by the older people, and that's why they're acting out right so it's just it's just again it's the pieces just fit
0: um. Yeah, it, it is an amusing joke, but it also does play to the theme. I think you're right there. Um, then we see uh uh we we see a little conversation between the two. And uh Mr. Robinson is basically it's interesting because he's he's basically like telling him you should sow your wild oats, right? But then he's also telling him that he should call up his daughter. So I like it's an interesting dichotomy he's doing there because he's telling him to go out and basically have lots of sex, but he also wants him to hook up with his daughter. So like, I wonder like if this is if this is a case of like, I want you to go and sow your wild oats, because I want you to get with my daughter, and I want you to get that all out of your system before you get with my daughter.
1: Which you know what? When you really think about like, kind of, I guess I don't want to say the culture, but it just I guess the um, the manner of the adults back then, you kind of get it. I think it's kind of even still to this day, you know, even though people maybe don't want to admit it, maybe there's some traditionality to it today as well. Like, yeah, your youth is supposed to kind of get that all out of your system before you kind of settle down. I mean, that's kind of a, a universal theme in life, at least, you know, for people. Um, maybe maybe more so for men, but um one thing that Suber does point out here, it's very interesting that this whole exchange. Is an example of what's called in comedy The boomerang effect I don't know if you've heard of this So what it, it encompasses Is basically one character Giving an idea to another character That ends up Rebounding back on that original character But where the comedy Comes is that it was that character's idea So as, you, as we go through the film you'll see Okay so Mr. Robinson tells Ben He needs to sew his wild oats Well yeah he gave him that idea So he hooks up with his wife Right? Um, and then, of course, the comedic element is as yet yeah, is that Mr. Robinson gave him the idea to sow his wild oats, but now it's now rebounded on him negatively. So there's comedy in that, and when you see it that way, it's kind of it, it is it's sad, but you do see the comedy in that. He's the one that told him to do this in a way, right? Maybe not, maybe not straightforwardly sleep with my wife, but he told him to, to sow his wild oats, quote unquote, and. That's what he did. So you can kind of shift the blame to Mister Robinson in a way when it comes to that. So I find that pretty hilarious.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's it. The scene is is very is very funny, but and especially in retrospect. Um, then we're gonna shift we're gonna shift the gears here to the next scene. It's also amusing in an absurd way. Uh, is uh, <laughs> we, we cut to um, uh, Ben's father. Uh, Mr. Braddock, kind of talking up his son in a uh, about his, his like he's about to do something like extraordinary with this amazing technology, and it turns out it's (laughs) it's this scuba suit that he bought him and he's going to demonstrate it in their, like, little pool. <laughs> um, and then you see this shot of Dustin Hoffman in the scuba suit coming towards the camera, and it's the most absurd thing in the world. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you, it's just an absurd comedic scene.
1: So there's a couple things I want to touch on here. The first is the whole... Um, Again, kind of going back to one of the things we talked about earlier, as far as his parents goes, they're just showing him off. Like, I I don't feel like, you know, and I think this is deliberate, you know, I don't feel like there's any real support from them. Is She's just being there to dangle in front of their little friends. Like, look at what my, like you said, well, look at what my parenting did. Look, he graduated. He's now turning 21. He's becoming a man, you know, so check out our awesome son, right? Not. In a, in a way of supporting him or like being like, you know, being really proud of him, but just kind of as a way to dangle as a trophy in front of people to just show off. Right. Um, You get more of that vibe here with Mr. Feeney kind of, you know, doing that to Ben with the whole scuba suit and everything. Um, And this is a good time to bring up what I wrote down 10 years ago in that lecture class on the Braddocks, Benjamin's parents. Right. So I wrote five different things here. Now I didn't, expand on any of it but I just kind of wrote little buzzwords so the first thing I wrote was supportive question mark so obviously are they really supportive of Ben on the surface you want to say yes because that's what their words are saying but just the, the overall like subtlety of it no they're not really being supportive like we've already been saying he's being dangled as a trophy and it's not it's not being shown as a sign of support for him It's being shown as a kind of measure of their own success, which is very, um, very much BS. I'll call it Um, the second thing I wrote was conformist. Are they really? Yeah. If you want to go back to the standard of like what they grew up and what they became adults in 50s culture. Yeah. They're the sign of the old. They're the sign of the past. And. This is what the 60s youth is trying to get away from. is that whole conformist attitude that, of their parents. Uh, the third thing I wrote was pushy slash controlling. Well, yeah, they're obviously pushing him to pick a graduate school. They're obviously pushing him in a certain direction. Not just his parents, but all the adults are pushing him in a certain direction that he doesn't want to go down. So, yeah, they are very, very pushy. They are being very controlling of him. The fourth thing was sp- spiritually bankrupt maybe there's there's more of a topic here that we can really get into um but you can kind of argue that too because you can argue that his parents played it safe they you know which is obviously like the 50s uh, mindset like you know you want to get go to school get the safe job start a family buy a house you know and just kind of play the safe route at that time right so when you do that, like there's no time to be you. There's no time to be like to do more exploring, to be more adventurous, to kind of really look at life in a different way. So you can argue that the, the, the adults of that time yeah, are spiritually bankrupt. They didn't really experience life. They're just kind of they had this path that was set for them and they just followed that path instead of kind of doing things that they really wanted to do. And the fifth thing is superficial. Are they superficial? Yeah, close. They're superficial. They're close-minded. You know, it's just, that's just how the adults were at that time. And that's what the youth of the 60s was noticing. And that, again, I I keep using the word rebel, but that's really what it was. It was a rebellion against that mindset. So, yeah. So the Braddocks, they're kind of, they're kind of a-holes in a way. (laughs) So I'm going to jump in a couple of things that you, you mentioned
0: there. Um, first is the, uh, the, the Kind of the showing off thing I think they're doing two things They're showing off him, Benjamin And they're also showing off uh, Their Their stuff That they can buy So when, when they're showing off Benjamin Kind of like the, the point I was making before They're not showing so much Benjamin off As they're showing off their own Success as a parent right? Like, look at how good he turned out, and it's because of us, right? And then the thing with the scuba suit, um, and the thing early, you know, that's more of a, look how well off we are, that we're doing, we got this ridiculous thing for our son, who, Mm -hmm. in the, in the entire film, doesn't really seem to, like, express any desire in, like, scuba diving uh either before or after this moment so it's odd that this is like a thing right um that they're 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 uh they're demonstrating but they got this for him but you know this also comes up in that that sports car they bought him um it's them showing off that they bought him the sports car because he doesn't seem to appreciate the car i mean he gets around in it right but it's not like he loves the car or treats it very well like he it's 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 just a thing he uses to get around in. Like it it could, like he may as well have like a a beat up car. Like he doesn't seem to appreciate the um, the elegance or the beauty of like this very expensive Italian car. But he literally tossed the
1: keys to Mrs. Robinson. He here, you take it. Like that's how apathetic he is to it. Yeah,
0: he he doesn't care about it because it's really his parents. It's his parents' gift to him, and one could argue like, well, he's not being very um, you know appreciative, but it's more like. He didn't really want it. Like, they just gave it to him because, like, they wanted to show off. Um, yeah. and same with the scuba suit. They, 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 um, uh, they gave it to him because so they wanted to show off. Um... And so that that's one thing. The other thing I want to jump on is when you said pushing him, I think there's a funny uh, visual gag of them literally pushing him is whenever he's in the water and he's, he goes up, he starts to go up and then you see Mr. Braddock's hand just push him back down into the water and then a little on again, the nose. And he pushes him back down again. So it's a very visual gag, but I mean, it's exactly what he's doing. He's trying to push him into the direction he wants him to go. Um, but again, it kind of, it kind of, goes into like the, this is a parent, like his mindset is not, okay, you finished college, um, what do you want to do with your life? It's more like, now that you finish college, this is the path that you're supposed to take. You're supposed to like, uh, you know, go to graduate school and then get a job and then get married and then have kids and then, you know, blah, 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 right? So it, it, that seems to be what he's pushing him towards, like a path. He doesn't really care about his happiness. He cares about
1: following this path. You know, you got to have that house with the with the wife and the kids and the white picket fence. That was, you know, that was the goal in the 50s. That's what, and, that's what everybody had to aim for.
0: And I think this comes up again with uh, Mrs. Robinson's backstory. And we'll get to that in a little bit later. Um, but uh, I think this is why the, it's not a coincidence that the very next scene is him calling up Mrs. Robinson to, like, have the affair. Because now it's him like, now
1: he's just going, F it. I'm going to... I'm just going to rebel a little bit here and not do what I'm supposed to do. Right. Um, Before we move on to that scene, though, I just want to point out one more thing. So um, if you notice that scene when he has he has in the scuba suit and he's walking towards the pool, it's first person view inside the helmet and you hear the breathing. Right. What other film within a year of this had the same thing? Oh, 2001. There you go. Yep. Which was our last film. Yes, ironically enough. So again, kind of what what do those two films like have in common when it came to that use of first person? Obviously, you wanted to get a feeling of claustrophobia, a feeling of suffocation, right? And that's what Ben was feeling at that point, not just like you know, literally, but like even figuratively, like you were saying just now, Mister Feeney's pushing him down into the water. He's trying to get out, and he just keeps pushing him down. Like again, like that that that's a little on the nose when it comes to like the symbolism and all that, but um it's just kind of funny that you know these these two films within a year of each other was they were able to kind of convey the same thing in different ways you know mm-hmm. um so we get to the next scene he's in a phone booth
0: and he's uh he's uh calling up he's at the uh, uh the Taft hotel uh and he calls up Mrs. Robinson basically basically in his very own awkward way telling her let's let's go for it let's do this uh let's have this affair she tells him where she is he is and she ends up you know uh and she tells him i'll be there in an hour and in this time that he's waiting for her he just has this very awkward interaction with pretty much everybody in the lobby <laughs>
1: uh are you here are you here for an affair sir <laughs> and He's like, like, um yeah, are you here for the singleman party? Ah yes, the singleman party. Yep. <laughs> I, l- I love that line, the singleman party. <laughs> That's a little on the nose too.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um and uh, you know he 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 ends up going to the singleman party and meeting a bunch of old people there and then he's like, Ah, I'm not really with you people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um so one thing one thing I, 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 I failed to touch on. Uh, before um when they were at Mrs. Robinson's house it's, I don't know if you noticed the background it's very uh very jungle vibe right it had all those like that all the like the the green and like it it, look, it looked like like a, the scene of a jungle as as far as some instead of somebody's backyard it looked like something out of a jungle right mm-hmm. um we kind of continue that here at the bar you know if you look through the window it's it's very like flowery it's very very jungle like right and then to kind of top that symbolism all off, here comes Mrs. Robinson wearing a cheetah coat. And it's like, okay, I see what you're doing here, Nichols. <laughs> At that point, it becomes it becomes a little on the nose. But, um, but I kind of like how it's like you, subtle. Yeah. Even the first time you see her
0: undress, like a, her, I think it's like her bra or something has like like a zebra
1: stripe or something to it, too. Yeah, that's right. So it's it, so we're seeing a very um, we're seeing a consistent jungle motif when it comes to Mrs. Robinson or anything having to do with her. So let's keep that in mind as we go along too. Uh,
0: yeah. So as as we, <laughs> so we we see him kind of interact with all these different people, like the the hotel clerk and the the single one party, and the, and eventually Mrs. Robinson does show up, uh, and he has another. By the brief- way, that
1: by the way, the clerk is Buck Henry. Yes, so.
0: yes, I did. Yeah, that that was also a good, a little cameo there, um, and uh, before Mrs. Robinson finally arrives and like kind of, uh, they start uh, having this, uh, you know, p- start planning this,
1: this uh, this tryst, as it were. Right. I the the scene right before it, um he goes upstairs, um. They, I love the interaction he has with Buck Henry, bro. Where he first of, first off. He was hoping he wouldn't get Buck Henry that second time he went to the desk. Yeah, there, that was that a guy's bit. there. Yeah. He goes, like, oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll be right back. And then like Buck Henry shows up from like the floor. He's <laughs> like, can I help you, sir? Like, oh, yes. Um, I think I want to get a like, I want to get a room. Yeah. 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 I, I, I would like a room, please. Like, OK. You know, do you have any luggage? Like, yes, I do. And the way he says, I love how, how he says, like, yes, I do. Um, where do you have your luggage? It's in the car. It's over in the car. <laughs> okay, I'll have a porter get it for you. And then he stops him from, well, he doesn't stop from ringing the bell, but he puts his head on top of the bell to stop him from ringing it the second, like, no, no, that's okay. Like, this luggage can just stay, like, I don't really need anything. Like, I got my tooth, I got to get my toothbrush, but, uh, you know, it, I don't really need the luggage, you know, and everything. <laughs> so, like, it's just it's such an awkward exchange. Like, and I'm listening to this, right? And I'm just saying, like, dude, like, you're so transparent, man. Like, hide it a little better. Like, you know? It's like... It, 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 I almost give the same advice to guys who are trying to, like, you know, arrange affairs on their own. Not that I encourage that stuff, but it's like, be a little more cool, man. But just the way that he played is just true to the Ben character right now. And... I just, it's such a funny scene just because of the awkwardness that comes out of it. You know, I have my toothbrush and, and then when he goes upstairs, he's he like, I got my toothbrush. Like, very good, sir. Like, oh, I'm tired now. Like, you know, I'm going to go to bed. Like, have a good night, sir. Like, just, even Buck Henry's great here. Just what a great sequence.
0: Yeah, it's, 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 it's very amusing because he's like, you're right. It's so obvious. And it reminds, like, you, you whenever you were younger and probably doing things you probably shouldn't have been doing. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, and you have to kind of convince adults that you were maybe older than you were. Um, even though he's a fully grown, I mean, he's 20 years old in this film, like uh, he's supposed to be 20 years old. That's an adult. He, he certainly has every right to, to, you know, get a room at a hotel if he wants to. Uh, but he's so nervous about it. He's acting so suspicious about it. <laughs> like, the hotel's not going to care what he's there for, you know, as long as he pays. Um, and Anybody and just as, long so as, it's yeah, as, long as long as it's legal, yeah, as long as it's legal. Um, and it's just very—it's it, a—it's a whole amusing bit, right? Uh, and then immediately afterwards, he—he he calls, he calls her uh, uh,
1: Mrs. Robinson. He's like, "I got the
0: room," and then...
1: like <laughs> <laughs> I got to hear it in your voice too. Like it's just the way he said, just the way he said it. Like I got the room. <laughs> like okay, like do do you want to? Do you want to go upstairs first? <laughs> it's like, um, yes, I'm going to do that. <laughs> like just everything it's just is. Like, so robotic. Is there something
0: you want to tell me? He's like, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate this. He's <laughs> like, I mean, I mean the room number. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right. She, she goes to him. Like, is it Ben? Is there something you'd like to tell me? Um, yes, yeah, so I just I just want to say how much I appreciate this. You know, you, you really like the room number, Ben. I need the room number. <laughs> oh, it's um it's uh, 5.20. I think it's 5.20. Like 5.23. I'll be up in five minutes. Okay. <laughs> and then he just say, and then that's when he goes to Bucker You're like, I got my toothbrush.
0: <laughs> uh, he's so bad. He's yeah. so bad at this. Um, Uh, And it it gets even worse uh, in the, in the bedroom, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a very funny scene. And again, this is all working for me. This, this up until now, all this stuff is working for me. This movie is very funny. Like I can, I understand why it's one of the, you know, it's on all these, like topping all these, like, you know, great comedy lists because it is a very funny movie for most of the, for half of it. So all this is working for me like absolutely gangbusters. Um, so he goes up to the room and he's kind of like trying to like make it and something. Uh, and I think it's in the Soderbergh commentary that they pointed out was that he puts condoms in the in the nightstand, which I never noticed. Like I uh, but it, it totally. It, unless they would have pointed it out, I would never have noticed that. Right. Um But it's a funny little gag. Uh And then as he waits for her to come upstairs,
1: yeah, Nichols pointed that out in the commentary. I was like, I, and I he said, "I'm like." Oh sh oh crap, you're right, you know? <laughs> because I don't, they don't really draw attention to it. Like he just kind of you see him just kind of shove something in a drawer, but they don't focus on it. That's why we don't know what it is. But now Nichols himself said, Oh, by the way, that's condoms like, Oh, okay. That's cool, I guess. You know, didn't notice that before. Hey, they're practicing safe sex, man. Oh, I got you got encouraged that, you know. <laughs>
0: um and then it's very – it's so funny because, like, he doesn't know how to start this. Like, he's clearly – like, he's – first of all, he's nervous. Um, but second of all – so how do you read this? Because, you know, she basically in, – in, in a couple of minutes after this, she basically goads him by saying, oh, this is your first time. You've never done this before. And he gets kind of insulted. And then that's kind of what, like, kind of – kind of, uh, you know, he shuts the door, turned off the lights, and, you know – it kind of prompts the scene for him to go for it right but like do you think this is his first time or do you think he's just nervous cuz it's mrs robinson
1: uh that's a great question and in fact I, I when i tried to answer for myself on this last viewing um i think it's his first time i'm just going to go straight out and say that
0: I think so too. I think this is. I th- I think this is his first time, and like he's never. He has literally not done this before, in the sense of he's never had an affair before, and he's never had sex before. So like he, he do- really doesn't know what to do.
1: So, there's an old saying that Suber pointed out here um, that likes to. Uh, I guess I don't know if it's like a universal truth, um, but it's one that film like would like to believe it is, and it's. Love is serious, sex is funny, right? so mm-hmm. I think the and this is I think Nichols kind of jumps on this um principle in that these scenes with him and Mrs. Robinson basically trying to have sex, they come all very awkward. they come all very funny, right? So there's a lot of comedy in this. but then later on, when he's dealing with Elaine, there's a lot less funny, right mm-hmm. now obviously, the reason why it's less funny is probably going to differ between what I think and what you think, but you can agree, at least, that the theme is, is there. Like, here this is all being played for laughs, while as later on, when we deal with Elaine, it's all serious. So, love is serious, sex is funny. That's a little bit on the nose here. Um, it's, and it's really encapsulated in the scene when he, tries, when he kisses her, and she didn't blow out the smoke from her cigarette. So, he, he, they kiss, no, he stops, and then she blows the smoke out afterwards. So that's a very hilarious visual, by the way. It's very, very, uh, very, uh, almost, like, almost, um, what's, who am I thinking of here? I don't want to say Marx Brothers, but it's very, like, very, um, very, like, Three you know? Yeah, I don't know if, yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. I don't know if Three Stooges is what I would go for,
0: but, um, like, I, I understand what you're saying. It's a very good gag. Yeah. Um. And you know, as he's kind of, kind of prepping the room, he's like, you know, she's like, "Hey, can you get me a hanger?" And he's like asking stupid questions, like, well, "Would you like a wood hanger or a wire?" Or a wire hanger, <laughs> you know? And like, and she's like, "I don't care. Like, just give me a hanger." <laughs> um, and uh he, you know, and you know, like the the gag with the kiss and the blowing smoke is also funny. And like, and then there's this point where he's like, where she's like trying to like rub some like she finds like a spot on her dress or her shirt or something and she's like trying to get it out and he's like just walks up to her and just put, puts his hand on her breast in the most awkward way possible and yes. then like just walks away <laughs> and she totally <laughs> doesn't sell it she's like she's the, like, as if he wasn't even there like she takes up her shirt and he puts his hand on her breast and then that, he just leaves it there. And as, as she's like, kind of seeing what's wrong with this 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 shirt, like what's on this shirt but they see, like the spot, and then like he just kind of walks away
1: again. <laughs> yeah, just uh, that that's very virginal stuff. So, you know, but but it's just it's it's just acted so great by the both of them,
0: you know. Yeah, and and this is where he's he starts to have his his doubts, and he doesn't want to do it. Um, And then she basically calls him out like, oh, this is your first time. You've never done this before. I understand. And then that's whenever he kind of takes the bait. And he's like, well, I'll show you.
1: You know, no, I, uh, I love that whole exchange because she goes to him. Is this your first time? That is a laugh, Mrs. Robinson. That is really a laugh. The way he says it, bro. I just start cracking up when he's like, "That's really a laugh." <laughs> like it's it's nothing to be ashamed of. Like Mrs. Robinson, no, this is of course not. Like, and then that whole just that whole from from the moment she even brings it up to the moment he slams the door is such a great exchange. And just but the way he says that's a laugh, Mrs. Robinson. That's really a laugh. Just the, the inflection in the voice and everything. It's just I love it. It's just so hilarious.
0: Yeah, and, and and I think that that's really what convinces me that it is his first time because of that whole. It, he gets so uh, defensive, uh, defensive about it that like if you weren't a virgin, like you wouldn't be that defensive. You'd be like, no, it's not my first time. I've done this it before. It's fine. But you know, like, but he's he gets so defensive about it that he's clearly like it clearly is his first time. Yeah, but it, that that's what makes it work though. That's what makes it seem brilliant. <laughs> Um, and I think at this point we get kind of another one of the, the, uh, Simon and montage, montages. Am I right here? Or is it, I yes. Here? Yeah. Sound of silence is back. Yeah. Sound of silence. And where he's just kind of like laying in the pool, kind of listless. Um, and then you kind of see a couple of scenes of him just kind of hanging around and then also some scenes of him kind of, uh, meeting up with Mrs. Robinson as well. Right. Um, a lot of use of montage in in, in this film. Um, something, um, I don't know if I I, like if it had been that heavily used before, like where it's set to a to music and you just see kind of like the the passage of time and you just understand what's happening. I mean, I know montage is not a very new concept, but like I feel like this is very it hadn't been done to like, like exactly like this before
1: super kind of mentioned something to the effect that what you're saying um it's really what he really emphasized on when it comes to that is that around this time like yeah it's common now like you get montages set to popular music all the time but in 1967 it really was unheard of in a way like yeah you had montages but it was never set to like popular like you know top 40 songs like simon and garfunkel so kind of kind of see that it was kind of innovative in that aspect that it was reducing like a popular on the people knew and setting it as a montage for like for a film. Um Like I said, nowadays it's, it happens all the time, but like in 1967, it was more of a new concept.
0: Yeah. And then there's a really good cut where he kind of gets out of the pool and he's putting on a shirt. And then as he's, then he like walks into the house and then the next cut is him walking if you're not paying attention, you'd think he's walking into the house, but it's really him walking into the hotel room with Mrs. Robinson and she starts undressing
1: him. It's a really good, it's a really good cut. It's very, very fluid. Yeah, there's a great scene, um, as part of that too, where like he gets up, like he, he's in a room again and he starts walking up, he sees his parents having dinner and he shuts the door on them, bro. What a uh, more symbolism there, bro! Like, I mean, it's it's pretty, again, I, I love. Saying the phrase on the nose, but like that, this is pretty on the nose what he's doing here, like the symbolism implied. So, but that's a great scene. Just like the way they look at him, like all awkward, like, are you coming for dinner? He just closes the door, like, screw you guys, right? Yeah. And I I think this is kind of one of those,
0: um, and this is kind of one of those, uh, things where, where this whole sequence, I feel like this is actually just showing his, um, his depression like he, he is depressed like i don't think i don't know if if in the ni- in 1967 um psychology had kind of advanced to the to the point where we recognize this as depression you know like we would in 2019 but this is clearly he he's so detached from all of this like he he's he's doing you know he's going there he's having sex with Mrs. robinson but it's like it's just like it's just something to do it, it's right. It's just kind of what doesn't necessarily like he, it's not necessarily like he's something he, um, uh, he like desperately wants. It's just something that's filling up his time.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I, I definitely see that aspect too. Um, uh, cause he's just like, and, and again, I don't mean to come off as an expert in psychology or having read the history of psychology, but I, I would imagine that around this time, it, depression wasn't really like really diagnosed the way it is now. I, I figured like somebody back then would probably just say to somebody who's depressed, just don't be depressed. I just feel right. like that's like the era of like you know what we're talking about here, like just because it. it I feel like even today, like I don't feel like there's a, a full understanding of what depression as a clinical term really encompasses. So to go back to the '60s. And have somebody, you know, when uh, you tell psych- uh, a psychiatrist, oh, I'm depressed, well, then just don't be depressed. Like, be happy. Like, you can't just say that to somebody now, you know, because it, it's it's so much deeper than that. But I I'd imagine, like, back then, like, that's all they would say to them, you know, which is why you had the youth being the way they were, you know?
0: Exactly. And and, and this is, what I think, basically what this whole sequence uh, uh, said, to this mo- said to this music is really meant to be it's just the this detailing the, his his overall depression um you also get that really great um you also get that really great uh uh m- sequence of cuts where like you see him you know jump into the water and then it cuts to him jumping on top of Mrs. robinson and then it cuts to him looking up at his father and he and he, and when goes back down, he's, he's like laying on like a pool, t- like a pool floaty. Mm-hmm. So and then, Mrs. Robinson isn't there anymore. Uh, and at this point, like you kind of get the passage of time. Like Mr. Braddock has been telling, It says something along the lines: "It's been months since you graduated, or something like that. Are you going to go to graduate school? What are you doing with your life?" You know. Um, so now his parents are less proud, and they just want him, their son, out of the house and like doing something. Um, and yeah, but notice,
1: no, but notice the scene here too. Um, there's a little bit of symbolism, um, in this whole thing as well, because if you notice, um, Mr. Feeney is blocking the sunlight on Benjamin, right? Because obviously it's a sunny day. He's in the pool. He's relaxing. He's trying to get a tan, I guess. And then his father, the way it's shot, he, his head is in front of the sun. So he's block, literally blocking his light. Right. So there you go. Like the adults are blocking the youth's light. Like, is it? Dude, like this, it's just such ripe for symbolism, bro. Like it's it, it's amazing.
0: Um and as as his kind of father is kind of admonishing him, uh, you know, we had Mr. and Mrs. Robinson come into the frame as well. And again, they Mr. Robinson starts pushing the idea of uh, call up my daughter, you know, call up my daughter because I want you to hang out with her. Um but again say this hi is again, to Mrs.
1: Robinson, Ben.
0: Yeah. So hello, the, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> um And, yeah, it's another one of those moments where you're like – you get the passage of time. You you know that it's been months. His parents, you know, clearly don't know what to do with him right now. And he's here. He's home. He's not doing anything really. He's going out late at night and staying out all night. Um, And, you know, obviously having sex with Mrs. Robinson, but they don't know that. Mm -hmm. He's staying out all night and um, hanging out in the pool all day. And I mean, this is, this is depression. I mean, that's what that is. And, but all they care about is wanting him to get out of the
1: house and like do something with himself. Exactly. Um, but it's obvious at this point that Ben is not interested in that at all, but at the same time, he doesn't know what he's interested in. Fair enough.
0: Um, and we got a scene where uh his mom his mom basically asks him what he's doing with his life as he's shaving um in a you know and he's he's trying to like not necessarily avoid it but he he's trying not to like tell her what's going on but she clearly knows something's up
1: now he okay this is something this is a trope that Suber pointed out even later there's another scene where he's shaving well, we'll get to that later right but it's it's not so much of an analysis more of an observation it's like why does why is it that, like, when it comes to when it's when somebody's shaving, some like the scene is basically what he's trying to say is anytime there's somebody shaving in a scene is always played for comedy, right? So it's like we're not really supposed to take what's being said seriously. Um, and that's put to great effect later on in this film, which we'll talk about later. But even here, like, when you think about it, like she's asking him what he's doing, he's lying to her, it's being almost played for laughs in a way. But it's just a, a, a question he kind of just posed to himself rhetorically, like. Why? What is it about shaving that's so funny? That like you don't, it, it kind of everything just comes off comedic when somebody's shaving. Like I, I don't know what it is. He doesn't know. I don't know. It's just it's just kind of weird. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I can see that. It, it is a little
0: strange. Yeah. Um, in our next sequence, we get to this is where things are finally starting. Starting to he's starting to, trying to figure out what he wants to do with himself and he knows he's been with Mrs. Robinson all these nights, all these months, whatever it is and he's only doing it just to do it, so he's trying to get to know her, he's trying to like find out more about her, more about her life she's clearly not interested, because she all she wants is like physical um, a physical connection with someone, because she like because it's pretty obvious she doesn't get it at home, right, and she doesn't really care about connecting on an emotional level she just wants she just wants sex, um, and he is the opposite. He doesn't. It doesn't seem like he cares so much about the sex as he wants some sort of interaction with a human being. And she's not interested in giving that to him. But he's clearly like suffering at this point. He's like he doesn't know what to do with himself, so he's like trying to like get something out of her uh, before they go into it. And this is where we kind of get a little bit of her backstory, uh, where like after a lot of prodding, and uh, she basically says that. The only reason she married um, uh, Mr. Robinson uh, was because she got pregnant with Elaine, um, and and you get a uh, a sense that she kind of resents that. Uh, that she resents that her 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 life was basically cut, you know, quote unquote, cut short by getting pregnant and having to get married and have a kid before she was able to like kind of fulfill her what she wanted to do. You know, she talks about how she was an art student, and then Card kind of just went away because she had to be a mom now and she had to be a wife now, uh, and you know, she she resents that and she's very wistful of that. And this is where you start to really get sympathetic for her, um, and it's. I don't know, this is, this is why I think she's a, overall
1: a better character than Benjamin, is because of the scene here. And something else to think about, too, that I personally notice when going through this, is that um, when you kind of look at her backstory, it's kind of a symbolism of what the 60s youth was trying to avoid, in a way. Because, just think about what you said. You know, she... You know, her and Mr. Robinson got together. She got pregnant, so she had to get married. Why? Because that's the plan. That's what you do when you get pregnant. You have to get married. The youth in the 60s wanted to say, no, we don't have to get married. We don't have to do this. But We don't have to go buy the book every time. We want to do what we want. So it's almost like she's here. She comes off as a victim. She's a victim to the system. When she was growing up, this is what you had to do. And there was really like, I don't know, if, I don't want to say there was no will to fight back against it back then. But in the end, she became a victim to the plan, a victim to the system, a victim to the culture. Right. Whereas today, if this had happened, I'm sure she would feel very differently. Maybe she would have maybe resisted the thought of marriage. Maybe she would have, I don't know, got an abortion. I don't I don't like saying that, but it's it's certainly an option. Right. You know, and you don't have to go by that. That's what the 60s is trying to convey to the adults at the time, we you don't have to go by the plane. You don't have to go by the book. So in earning sympathy from Mr. Mrs. Robinson in that aspect, yeah, you she earned sympathy because now she's a victim to the system. The system that the sixties youth is trying to break away from
0: uh, uh, yeah I, I yeah that's definitely a, a a way to look at it. Um now after this um you know, he, he kind of makes a joke about taking Lane out and she is having none of it. And to a little bit of trivia here, like she kind of grabs his hair, and apparently she really grabbed it in real life and it hurt Hoffman. <laughs> it he was kind of pissed, pissed him about off. it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: but um in this scene, she basically says she doesn't want him to date her daughter. Now, what is your theory on why that is? Why doesn't she want him dating her?
1: I mean, it's a little awkward, don't you think? I mean, just I just on I mean, surface level, that, it, I think I don't think that that's it. I don't think that's the only reason. Hmm. I mean, I don't know if I really thought about it past that because just that one thing is enough, right? That's enough of a good reason.
0: I don't know. I just think I just think that it's. I don't think it's just the mere the mere fact of like. Well, I don't want my daughter dating the same guy that I'm having sex with. I don't think it's right. just that. I think there's something else. Like cuz he cuz he even mm-hmm. says like, "Oh, I'm not good enough to be with your daughter." And, she, and 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 like there is something there. Like I think there is something like she cuz whenever he's like going off on her, like you kind of get up like a close up, she's in the foreground and she's kind of almost on the verge of tears. Right. Like is it a matter of she doesn't want her daughter to end up like her. But at the same time. She pushes her towards. A very vanilla safe guy. Towards the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, that. You know. Almost guarantees her. The same kind of life that she just had. Right. So like, what is it about. Like. What is it about Benjamin specifically. That she doesn't want him to be around. Like other than the fact that she's had sex with him. I don't think that's the only reason. They could be,
1: you know, that, like you kind of already pointed out, the guy she's trying to push him towards is the safe option when it when it comes to that mindset, the adult mindset at the time. He's, you know, I guess, tall, blonde, white. I guess I mean I don't want to I don't like to go there, but I mean that's kind of the reality of it in a way. And you know, he he seems like he's well on his way to be a success. Of course, that's the safe option. Whereas Ben. <laughs> He's aimless right now. He doesn't know what he wants. He doesn't, we don't know what he's going to become. And that's always – and he's, he's a riskier option. But again, the safe option is what this, the youth is, doesn't want anymore. We don't want to just be confined to the safe option or to the plan. We want to be able to do our own thing and take our own risks. Yeah, I guess. I, I just think there's – I still – I feel like there's something more there. There's something more I mean than there that. could be. There could be. But there's two more things I want to point out just on the scene. First of all, I, I just I love the uh I love Dustin Hoffman here. You go to hell, Mrs. Robinson. You can go straight to hell. The way he says that is so great. And then you can kind of see her her facial just kind of change there. Like, you know, like you said, she's on the verge of tears, always basically telling her off, right? Um and then the second thing that's a little that's not, 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 not a little, but it's that's interesting is that the tone of the scene changes. Based on the characters, on whose perspective you're really paying attention to, the whole thing, you know, where we're getting the backstory of Mrs. Robinson and all that. If you hear that from Ben's pr- perspective, it's a comedy. I mean, you, you see it for yourself. He's sitting there like, oh my, a Ford. Like he's laughing at the fact that it was in a Ford, right? That 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 they hooked up and like, oh, that's so funny, like a Ford of all things, right? But then with Mrs. Robinson's perspective, that story's a tragedy. Like you already pointed out, like, you know, her life basically got cut off at that point. She didn't really get to do what she wanted to do, live her life to the fullest, what she, you know, what she maybe had strived for. She kind of had to now settle down to the plan that she had to get married. You know, so with from her perspective, that story is a tragedy. But to Ben, it's it's funny. Like, oh, you know, he's just focusing on like the car that that the model, the car that they use. It's just all these like superficial, unimportant things. And to him, it's just a funny story. So you kind of it's interesting just to see how the tone changes based on whose perspective you hear the story from.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. And she's I think that this is the point where, like I said earlier, we're we are meant to sympathize with her, Um, even even if maybe most people don't. I I feel like this is where I really sympathize with her the most. Right. Um, On our next scene, again, we get another example of a of of the parents kind of pushing him to do something uh, with his life. And finally they're like kind of egg him on to like, you know, ask Elaine out. And, you know, we just got that scene where he basically said he's never going to ask her out, but he's like, just wants to get his parents to shut up and get him off his back. Right, He eventually asks her out, which leads us to that great scene where, like, he's getting to their house, and all you see is Mrs. Robinson, like, at that bar in, like, their house,
1: and she's just, like, looking off, and she is pissed. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, we get uh, our boy Murray Hamilton, scotch or bourbon? A bourbon, and he pours some scotch again. Like, come on, dude, like, listen to him. He's telling you he wants bourbon, you freaking guy. Um, (laughs) But anyway, yeah, but then this whole... dialogue between Mrs. Robinson and Ben here you know like you know I had no choice my parents were making me do like I hope you're not upset like but I'm very upset Ben you know no she was like "Like, but I'm very upset Benjamin you know (laughs) like I had had no choice it's not my fault you know (laughs) and then um, at that point that's when kind of Elaine just kind of walks in and then this next sequence is so great because it's, it's such a Ben thing to do like he's pretty much caught between a rock and a hard place so what's he gonna do he's gonna try to sabotage the date To kind of make L.A. not want to see him ever again. Okay. Now, this is where I
0: start to hate the movie. This is where I'm with this movie up until, I think I, let me, I wrote it down, um, because I, I, let me find it here, because I wrote it down. Give me one second. Up until, uh, let's see here. I'm going to cut this out while I look
1: this up, because I had it written down. Okay, in three,
0: two, one. Now, this is where I started to hate the movie, and I wrote it down because I knew, because I wanted to make a note of it. Up until the 57 minute and 57 second mark, when we finally see Elaine enter the movie, this is where I start to dislike the movie. Ah, uh, because this entire he, right up until that point, like you just said, he was going over. Like I didn't want to do this. My parents made me do this. I didn't want to. And going all through all this stuff. Elaine enters the picture, and within a, and then within a second, you see his eyes kind of open up a little bit, and you can tell, oh, Elaine is beautiful. I like her. Now, of course, he does does go on to sabotage the date, but in that moment, you can tell he likes her, and this is where. Ben becomes completely from the from this point in my opinion from this point forward the film takes a different shift it's about something else and Ben becomes a less and less and less likable character as the film goes on
1: We're going to get into it a little bit later and, on and, and we re- sequence, really see it but yeah
0: and this sequence here uh is uh where he where he takes her to the um to the the cabaret show or whatever uh and he's clearly trying to sabotage the date so he doesn't have to you know hear from mrs robinson uh is the he is such an asshole in this scene mm-hmm. such an asshole and like it's even worse like when she starts crying because like he see and yeah he starts to feel bad because she's crying but you lose all i i lose all like uh sympathy for ben at this point because he did this and yeah he might be sorry in that moment but he should have known that it was gonna be such a i mean he was just thinking about himself in that moment right but he should have known this could have backfired horribly and it did
1: i think that him Pretty much coming to his senses the moment she starts crying is what's supposed to, I guess, redeem him in uh in Mike Nichols' view. Uh,
0: in my opinion, that is not.
1: So you think that just because he did this one thing that now he's now sorry for, just
0: forget it. Like you're, you're, yeah, you're, because you're an asshole. Because think about this, right? The, at this point, he only has this like one night with her, and. He doesn't really get to know her that well. He she thinks he's pretty. Obviously, it's Catherine. Wow, she's very beautiful, uh, and he treats her like garbage for the first part of the day. and then like he kisses her, and then like they have a better date after that. Um, that doesn't redeem him. Like he's still like he's pretty much very um, superficial, like in in, in how he uh, in how he views her, right? He, because he doesn't know. He doesn't really get to know her that well before. their next date and but he just decides that he like loves her right and he's so entitled after this and it really bugs the shit out of me um and he yeah that he him like correcting his mistake because he realizes it's such a terrible thing to do to a person is not redeeming
1: in my opinion so a couple things number one you're absolutely right him even Trying to do this is very selfish of him. All he's thinking about is, "Oh, I don't. I want Mrs. Robinson off my tail. Like I don't want her to be mad at me, you know. So I'm gonna try to do whatever I can to get rid of Elaine forever. So I'm gonna purposely sabotage the date, which is a very immature thing to do, right? Um. So it's it's obviously here in this point in the film, Ben has not reached any sort of maturity. Like he's still kind of in that aimless zone. Which I guess maybe this is where Nichols wants him at this point in the story, right? um secondly the resolution to this does kind of come off a little bit unrealistic because yeah he comes he starts apologizing to her and then like yeah like you said he kisses her and then it's like everything's forgiven like that would never happen you know in real life like that's just it comes off i don't want to say you know inauthentic but it's just like you kind of see the situation it's like okay this would never happen. Like The girl would, like, be running for the hills at this point, right? She wouldn't even be giving him the time of day to even talk to her to say, I'm sorry. So, it's just, it doesn't feel like a real situation. Like, it just feels like it's a convenient situation to progress the story, right? But, having said that, I don't know if I'm taking the such the, the harsh tone that you are and saying, oh, just because, you know, he's sorry doesn't make what he did right. Yeah, it doesn't make what he did right, but I don't, think it's unforgivable. I mean, he, he obviously is very remorseful. You know, he's, you know, he's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't mean to do it. There's like something else going on. Like, like he's, he's authentic in his feelings when it comes to that. So I just feel like I'm just a little more forgiving when it, when, when, because I see the authenticity coming from not only doesn't happen the actor, but Ben, the character, which I guess makes me soften up to him in that regard. So I don't really take that hard line. Oh, well, he took her out deliberately trying to be an asshole like he's an asshole forever like I guess I just don't see it that way but I guess my point is is that he
0: he does it and he he proceeds to fall in love with this girl based on nothing but superficial reasons and like so for him to like he may have done the right thing by correcting his mistake but then we're supposed to like follow this love story after this like to me that's not a love story this is at this point this is right now in the story. This is a story of a guy who was having an affair, started to see went on a date with his daughter, treated her rudely, and now is trying to make up for it for treating her rudely, um, and maybe starting to get to like they start to get to like and know each other a little better after that. After this point, like like this, this at this point, like I the movie never develops into a love story. I also I know a lot of.
1: A lot of misguided people think it
0: is.
1: (laughs) But uh, as we'll get to when we get to the end. um, What's funny about kind of that whole thing. Is even Super points out like. um, It's pretty ambiguous. We'll get to the whole ambiguity thing. and, And you know when we get to the end. But it's more in the sense that. It's not. It's not set. What you're supposed to think like. For some people, it's a love story; it's a happy ending. For some, it's a story of, I guess, maybe inescapable human destiny. You know, it's it it, it means different things to different people. So, I guess what he's trying to say is there's really no wrong way to look at this story. Well, although I think the way you know um, Tom from Five Hundred Days of Summer sees it is is wrong. But you know, but when he and that's not just this film. This is just any film. Like when the way people look at it like there's no wrong way to you know feel about a film that's just that's the beauty of the film medium but we'll get more into that at the end because that's when we really need to talk about ambiguity but um as far as right now goes i personally I just feel you being a little rough on the guy on the character because yeah. again he, he does feel sorry for what he's doing and i think the film kind of sets up the way he's acting you know, it's almost like it's it feels like it's in character for him because he's so at this point in the story, so immature that, yeah, an immature guy would try to sabotage a date like this. So I don't know if it's necessarily out of, um, I guess, sympathy, but it's just in line with what the character what we're believed the character would do in the situation.
0: I, I guess is my point is like there
1: are easier
0: and less mean ways to sabotage a date than what he did. Right. Like, I think some people might, I don't know if the intent of that scene was to make it funny or not, but it wasn't fun. I mean, it was kind of heartbreaking. Like, there are so many ways to make that date go, like, in a way that is bad and she might not want to see him. Like, you could just not talk to her all night. You could have just been kind of giving her one word answers. You could have taken her to, like, um a bad restaurant or like not tip the waiter or whatever just done anything else other than what he did like it's such an extreme to go to that's why i think like it's a little bit of a he's not really forgiven for me
1: okay i mean that's fair enough you know i just feel like the way the film is set up as far as his character it's something that it's kind of already kind of given a little bit of background so you kind of understand not so much agree with obviously but you get why the character's acting the way he's acting it's, it's already kind of been set up previously with everything else he's already done i feel that way at least ah well d- we'll agree to disagree on
0: this one then yeah fair enough um shortly after this uh after you know he kisses her and like he kind of commits her to keep hanging out You know, like they get to know each other a little bit. They they he explains something like, oh, I just have this compulsion to be rude, which is such BS. Um, And then they, you know, at the end of the night, they make plans to see each other the next day. Maybe they go for a drive or whatever. Um, And at the end of the night, she seems like she had a good time. Uh, And I don't and I don't think that if this were to have happened like now, times are different. Right. Like in, in today's day and age. You know, if if Ben did that to to, to Elaine, she could have like nope the hell out of there, called an Uber and gone home. But like you know, right. back in the 1967, she was he was the ride. Like, where else, what else should she gonna do? Like she, you know, she was in the middle of like the the city. She didn't have a way to get home. Like she had, she was kind of stuck with him, and she had to kind of like just be, you know, beholden to him to take her home. Um So like as they progress through the night, like she ends up getting to know him, beginning to like him. Um, you know, she kind of guesses that maybe she had, he had an affair because of when they go to that hotel, everyone's kind of treating him like they know him. Um, Mr. Gladstone, bro. Yeah. Mr. Gladstone. (laughs) Um, but, uh, and she kind of even forgives him for that. Um, and yeah. So the next day, uh, he goes to pick her up and instead of, uh, uh, Elaine coming out of the car. Who just comes out to the car? But uh, Mrs. Robinson herself.
1: Yep. Um, and just real quick before we kind of move on to that scene, there's a little bit of trivia here. Um, so in the scene when he when he first tries to drop off Elaine, and then that's when he kind of says, "You know, do you want to go like for like a nightcap or like a late night drink?" So like, when, like, are there any bars around? So in that scene, as they're driving off, you're supposed the camera holds on the house. Because you're supposed to be seeing a light turn on. But apparently what happened was the light person missed their cue. So, and I guess they couldn't reshoot it. So that scene just got left in the movie without the light turning on. So it's a little bit awkward when Mike Nichols looks at it. Because that's a deliberate mistake that he had to leave in there. But um, it's just kind of funny looking back on it. now. That There was supposed to be a light turning on. It was supposed to be Mrs. Robinson turning on the light at her window to watch them. But the guy missed his cue to turn on the light. So but that's what's left in the movie now. It's just kind of funny,
0: yeah, but you know what? I think it's okay. I think it still works because like you can you like you are you know that like she Mrs. Robinson is watching like the reason they stay on the house is Mrs. Robinson is watching them through the window. Like right. and she doesn't necessarily need to turn on the light for it to for you to get that for you to understand that
1: right. But now we get this uh, the, this is the um, I guess the big blow off scene, one of the big blow off scenes here. There's a lot of climaxes in this film, I've noticed. Um, so here, Mrs. Robbins obviously gets in the car, like, you know, drive around the block or whatever she says. And she goes like, Benjamin, I'm prepared to tell her everything unless you, you stop seeing her. Like, I want you to stop seeing Elaine because if not, I'm going I'm to tell her. Basically, I'm prepared to tell her. And then he stops the car. Like, you wouldn't do that. Try me. Okay. So the, the dude gets out of the car in the pouring rain, runs to the house. And tells Elaine everything, bro. Like what? Oh, well, man. he doesn't really tell something? her. He he
0: he starts to tell her. Yeah. And then and then she's like, he's like, you know the woman I was having an affair with, the older woman. And then you see Mrs. Robinson kind of pop up in the background. Elaine turns around, sees the shocked look on her mother's face, and looks and then pieces it together. And then she's like, "Oh my god!" And then she like, I think she slaps him, right? And then gets her, gets him out, of, like, basically kicks him, kicks her, kicks him out of her room, and he leaves, and, you know, uh, Mrs. Robinson kind of looks at him and just says "The very mournfully, you know, goodbye, Benjamin. And
1: that's it, yes, and perfect use of focus here. I don't know if you, you caught that.
0: Um, yes, she's in the, she's, because she, when Elaine is focused in the frame, you see Mrs. Robinson uh, out of focus, and then it flips Whenever she looks at her, and you see Mrs. Robinson in focus, and then she comes back, and it's back on a focused uh, Elaine.
1: But as she slowly realizes – like, she's out of focus, yeah. right? But as she slowly realizes the truth, like, she comes back into focus. Like, that's so – dude, like, what happened to filmmaking, dude? It's just so – it's so good. Yeah, it's well, very I, As I'd like, like, like to say in, in – uh, in when we talk about wrestling, what happened to this business, bro? <laughs>
0: It's very good filmmaking, but it, it, like it,
1: from this point forward,
0: he like I just don't like Ben. Oh, here
1: we go. We get he, we he, get
0: stalker Ben. That's what you're gonna go into, right? <laughs> he becomes a complete incel from this point forward. Dude. Like he, I mean, I know he's not an incel because he had sex before, but he's pretty much acting like it. Right? He's 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 completely thinks he's entitled to Elaine at this point. Like, he only spent one night with her on a date where he, for half of the date he treated her like crap. And he now just feels like he's in love with her and thinks that she just belongs to him. She He goes, he has a whole plan that he's going to marry her. He even tells his parents he's going to marry her. But he hasn't even talked to her since she, like, threw him out of her life. And, like, the movie lets you know that it's been a while. It's been months. And it's back to the point where, like, she is now in college you know uh or going to college uh and like he follows her to college like he is he is not a good person he's a creep at this point point. and he turns into a weird stalker for like the rest of the movie and it's really unsettling
1: yeah this is i knew when i with this recent rewatch i'm like okay i this swore this is where adolph was going to have a problem and i see it too like it's just this very stalkerish this is very this is creepy ben but then this gets interpreted as being romantic. But, like, maybe it was back then. I don't know. I don't know what the standards were in 1967. But, like, looking at it in 2019 eyes, this is very, like, oh, uh, okay. Like, this would not work in the Me Too movement era, you know? But not this even just... then. Like, even, like, when I saw it, like I said, like,
0: 15 years ago, I was like, no, this is wrong. This dude is so in the wrong here. Like, he's not – he does not get to have her just because he likes her. And I think that this is – um this is the this is like the beginning of of like that whole like kind of trope in romance movies and romantic comedy movies that if you just keep at it, eventually she's gonna fall in love with you. And no, that's not how it works. Like if someone tells you no, and I I just swore on, on our on our podcast, <laughs> if someone tells you no, then that's it. Like it's no. Like just move on with your life. Because you, you're done now. Um, but but he, he feels like he's entitled to her. So he feels like he can just go and stalk her basically at her college. And that's, it's not okay. And it's, it, I think it set up a dangerous precedent for, for men everywhere who watch this movie and think that that's what you're supposed to do. And it, it, it's, it's not, it's not cool. Um, he is not a good guy. And the, not only that, the movie basically stops being funny from this point forward. The movie's not funny anymore. It's just now this weird stalker drama.
1: Well, like like I kind of said earlier, you know, love is serious, sex is funny. Now, obviously, the reason why this is serious is a different reason, I'm sure, than what the film was intending. But I think now we kind of proven that principle a little bit true, if if you know what I mean. Um, The other thing, too, is that... Hold on, I think I lost my train of thought a little bit, as far as Ben. um, Because... uh, Shoot, I... You know what? I'll I'll come back to it. I just lost my train of thought now trying to bring up the other thing. So, but it'll come back to me in a minute. But uh well, I don't know if you wanted to say anything else about this, but Oh, no, um, no, I remember now. I remember now. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um so I think when it comes to that aspect too, this is deliberately the film's fault, you know. Not just because yeah, obviously, you know, they kind of made him that way, they kind of made him like be all stalkerish and not, but the fact that it works it's what really makes the little, yes. uh, yeah, this doesn't feel right. Not anymore, at least like the fact that it works, it's just sending, like you said, it's just sending all the wrong signals or the wrong messaging.
0: Yeah. And the, the movie keeps like trying to, it's deliberately trying to get you to be on his side. And I just can't, like, I don't know how anybody can watch this movie from this point forward and be on his side. Cause he's not doing anything like, and why would she want to be with him? She, she just found out that for months he was sleeping with her mother. Why would she want to be with him? Like, just cause they had a nice night that one time, a night that started with him being a total ass. Again, one date, that's all they've had is one date.
1: Why would she, why would she want to be with him? Again, yeah, now this is the part of the story where we're we're like way detached from reality, not just from, like I mentioned before, the date scene, how like that would not end the way it did if this was real life. Now we're talking about, you know, why would she even give this guy the time of day knowing the truth about what he's been doing with her mother is like, no way would anybody even consider that. And it's just like it's almost like it's forgotten at the point when they get back together later on, it's just like, how could you f- just kind of let that slide? Like if the roles were reversed, let's say that was like, you know, my mother or something like I'd be, I'd be totally creeped out by the guy. Like, are you kidding me? Like that's, that's when the film, like really kind of starts losing its sense of reality and it becomes like this just kind of hopeless romantic story in a way. But again, it's not so much that he's doing all these stalkery and y things the problem is that it works. That's where the problem lies.
0: Yeah, it, it, that is upsetting. Um, now there, there's one I do want to point out. One thing that I think is some good filmmaking is the. It's a really cool shot, and he comes. Uh, when he comes, you know, I, I forget what town they're in, whatever college town they're in. Um, and he he decides to get like a room at like this boarding house or or apartment or whatever. And as he's talking to like the landlord. Like he's going they're going up the spiral staircase and like the camera like follows them up like yes in the staircase which is a really neat shot it's kind of like it's like going I'm not even sure how they did it but it's like the cameras almost like being pulled up uh through the staircase as they're talking to each other which is a really really neat shot
1: uh I heard that was also new technology at the time i don't I think so. there was a, like maybe one or two of the films that had used that um but for for the time like this was like a Unique way to shoot something. I forgot what they had to actually build to kind of have the camera just kind of move up the stairs the way it did. But um, for what I understand, that's that was new technology for them that they were using. Um, and of course, we have to mention Mr. Roper as the landlord, bro. Of course, because yes, he was really because good. Mr. Roper. Yeah. yeah and he... then um and then another thing. Uh, what do you want to say about him? No, go ahead, go ahead. Well, what I wanted to point out was. There's a very specific part of the dialogue here where, you know, Ben is talking to the landlord, like they're just kind of conversing, you know, and then kind of the subject of why he's here comes up. And all of a sudden, like um Mr. Roper just kind of stops in his tracks, looks at him, he goes like, Are you one of those outside agitators? Like, because I won't stand for it. I don't I don't like any of that. Like, I won't stand for it. Like, no, 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 I'm not here for that. I'm not here for that, you know. So it's a little weird in a sense that this film is, is essentially one of the, the, I don't want to say the foundation, but kind of one of the hallmarks of the counterculture of the sixties. Right. But you're having Ben, your central figure in this story kind of stay away from like the student protests of the time and all of that political stuff. So is this the film again telling you, yeah, we're giving you a message, you know, about you know your culture and what needs to be done about it, but we're not gonna go there, right? Maybe even that was a bit of a hot button issue for Mike Nichols to touch. So they're like, nope, we're not touching that political stuff. You know, this is gonna be more of a, of a maybe about of a cultural kind of upheaval, more of a cultural like, um, I don't want to say revolution, but I guess I'm just gonna use that word. We're not touching that political stuff. You know, this is strictly, you know, based on, like, individuality, I guess. Which is kind of an interesting way to to look at it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is interesting because they, I mean, this was, like, right in the middle of the Vietnam War. That's right. And and this is a movie about the, you know, youth in the 60s. It'd be interesting. It's interesting that they didn't
1: touch on any of that. Yeah, I mean, supposedly in the original draft of the script, there's supposed to be a scene where, like, Ben is arriving at Berkeley, like, in the middle of a protest. But but that was deliberate. Like take out. They they redid the scene to like take out all of that stuff.
0: Um. So shortly after this, uh, we see him. Uh, uh, he as he's stalking her, he finds you know he sees her get on a bus, follows the bus and gets on the bus, uh, and then finally interacts with her for the first time. She clearly wants nothing to do with him, but he's following her on the bus like a creep. Uh. And um. Finds out she's going to the zoo to meet up with uh, oh, I forget his name or her
1: her Carl Smith I think his name
0: is yeah her guy who who she ends up being uh, engaged to later in the film, um and he basically is um he's basically you know just letting her know like hey I'm here to I'm here for you and this is what I'm here for uh they end up at the zoo and we see we see the guy. And like he's like Whitey white man, like he's, <laughs> That's like right. like the whitest person like possible, like the most dorky, blandest, nerdiest looking guy like they could have possibly picked, right? Um And but what I think is interesting is that they he, t- he totally does a, and I think every man has done this when he feels threatened by another man in around a woman that he's either with or interested in. Like as he gets introduced to to Benjamin, he like he's like, oh, nice to meet you, and then he puts his arm around Elaine uh, and then like scoots her away, like mm-hmm. nope, mine, you know, um, and if, trying to exert his dominance, uh, which I think is interesting in in in, in that uh, scenario, especially since they're in front of the monkey cages.
1: Yeah, who's the monkey now, Ben? Of course, that's that's deliberate symbolism. Like he's trying to—he went through all this, you know, all these links to get back to Elaine. This Carl Smith guy just kind of whisks her away like nothing, and he starts looking like a like a monkey, you know. So that's that's again, that's a little on the nose there, Mike Nichols. Um,
0: and in the next scene, we get uh, we get Ben again shaving, um, and uh, Elaine comes to visit him, and she is pissed. Uh, And she basically says, you know, hey, what are you doing here? What do you even think that you even have a shot with me whenever you were with my mother? And we find out that her mother has been lying about the situation. And basically it's inferred that she, that Mrs. Robinson has been telling Elaine that uh, Ben raped
1: her. Yeah. Uh, And then, of course, like, You know as anybody would do like that is Not what happened and then of course he tries to go Into detail Awkwardly I might add She's not having any of that so she Causes a commotion you know she starts screaming Really loud in the apartment and then of course All the tenants including a very Young Richard Dreyfus, yes (laughs) Comes and says, uh, Should I call the cops I'm gonna call the cops Like no 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 everything's fine Everything's fine and of course That's when Mr. Roper pretty much tells him I want you you Out of here you know great stuff by the way
0: yeah um and then you know they continue to have another conversation and and then he this is where he starts to win her over and it's like you like a minute ago you just said that you thought he raped your mom and now
1: you're starting to like think he's an okay guy now all of a sudden you care what he wants to do with his life like you know it's like so so where are you gonna go i don't know what are you gonna do i don't know and then she's actually, you know, like, I don't want you leaving here till you figure out what you're going to do. And then she's like, storms off. And is like, why do you all of a sudden care what he wants to do? <laughs> like, he should be the last thing on your mind right now based on just everything that just happened. But, I mean, whatever, right? I Movies. Uh, that's how I call it. Just movies.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, later on, I think it's the same night, like, she comes back to this room. Um, I don't remember if there's a scene in between this. But she comes back to his room and asks her... Ask him to kiss her, and yep. then um, then he's like, "Well, hey, let's get married." And then she she basically says no, and then he keeps pestering her about getting married until she found like, okay, um, until one day after all this pestering and, and like, oh, let's get the blood test tomorrow. Let's go blah, 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 and let's do this tomorrow. And, but one day he comes in, he thinks he's gonna get uh, get married and run away with Elaine. Uh, he comes home. And uh, who else but Mr. Robinson is sitting there waiting for him in the dark. Uh,
1: Yes. Uh, but Before we get into that, I'm going to have a little bit of an awkward question. Now, I'm going to, again, I might have to admit a little bit of my ignorance on the subject. You being the married man, I have to ask you, like, is that really a thing like? getting blood tests before like getting married or something because that, no. that, I know that he said that and it's like it just it felt weird no like, it's is that an really old, a thing?
0: it's an old thing and I think that's I think it was we didn't have to do that um I, I think it and maybe in some states you still do um but I think it's like a leftover thing whenever people were supposed to be virgins when they got married and you're supposed to check to see if you don't have any like You know STDs or something. Uh, I think that's what the uh the point of the blood tests were. Um, but I I think it's a relic, and I don't think this really happens anymore. Uh, I certainly didn't. In the state of Illinois, we didn't have to do that. (laughs) Um, I don't know if any other states still have this. Uh, but I certainly did not have to do that. No. All right. I just it was
1: something curious. Like I heard that, and I'm like, that doesn't sound right. But yeah, it used to it used to be a thing. I'm not married. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, yeah, going back to now, so he's all happy, like he gets the flowers, I think he buys even the, the ring already that he's going to give to her, and then he goes into to his apartment, and Mr. Robinson's already sitting there in the dark, and it's just like, holy... Yeah, so when it as it happens, you know, Ben obviously is like shocked and surprised, that's how we're supposed to act too as the audience, like, holy crap, he's there, like, how, first of all, who let him in, right, so like, like, how did he even get into the apartment, right, so, and then this is this is a little weird because we are supposed to feel bad for mr robinson i I guess we're supposed to feel bad for him uh, like as a as a rational human being we're supposed to feel bad for him, but I think the film kind of wants us to not right because i I feel like they want to treat him as like kind of that relic of the past. Like Again, he's, like, he's an adult, so he's, he's evil. You know? he's, like, he's the guy you're, you're trying to fight against, so you pretty much just stuck it to him by what you did. But when you look at it as a human being, no, Ben screwed him over. You know? He, he yeah. like, betrayed him. You know? it, it,
0: it, the, the film absolutely wants you to think of him as the bad guy. But if you look at everything within the context of the film and everything that happens within the film, Mr. Robinson has not done anything wrong. The only thing he's done, quote unquote, wrong is maybe not be uh, f- the physical, it might be physically what his wife wants, because which is why she goes off to seek, uh, you know, sex from from Benjamin. Right. Um, other than that, now you, there's no in, there's no inclination or, or or inference that he's cheated on her. There's no one. There's no evidence that he like beats her or, or does anything to her or verbally abuses her or physically abuses her. Um, he seems to be be a a man that has you know some wealth and and you know is takes care of his family. Um, it, there's nothing that he's done wrong in the quote unquote wrong in the marriage, other than the fact that she doesn't love him, right? He seems to be fine with the marriage, right? Um, but his wife has been sleeping. With her, with this kid, and now the same kid that he wanted his daughter to end up with. And now he finds out that his, that this creepy little bastard has followed his daughter to college. And, and like he, of course he's, he's, he's in the, he's in the right here. And he tells him, like, I'm going to put you in jail if you don't, if you don't, if you stop, if you don't stop seeing my daughter. Now, where he goes too far is forcing Elaine to marry some some doofus, yeah. right? But up until that point, th- he's not done anything wrong. And he's he's not to be like him and Mrs. Robinson at this point, um their biggest crime is uh is forcing Elaine to marry someone she doesn't want to marry. Um right. but he before then he's in the right. Um now do they have a right to like say who their who their daughter should should or shouldn't see no, but i obviously he he should have he should be somewhat pissed off if like the man who slept with his wife is now trying to sleep with his daughter
1: no you're right and like I said, like just kind of just as a human being, you have to sympathize with them because it's like he you know he was the one that was wronged in all of this. You know, it wasn't Ben. It wasn't Mrs. Robinson. It was him. He's kind of in the middle of that. He was the one that was wronged in this whole thing. So it's a little, it's a little, I guess disingenuous to have the film really push the whole, like, oh, he's the bad guy, right? Yeah. They kind of, they have to make him the bad guy in, in the sense that, yeah, he's forcing his daughter to marry some guy, right? Um Sometimes just random guy, just kind of spite Ben, but it's like, but like you said, before that, he's completely a sympathetic person, right? And um, the the thing I wanted to say also before that was, um, I didn't know if you were if you were talking about Ben or Christian when he said "creepy little bastard," but um, it it applies to both. Ben, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little wrestling joke for the for the folk out there. But anyway. Um, but yeah, so, I, but I love the way kind of storms out, out of this. Like, you know, I think you are scum. I think you are filth. I think you're a degenerate. <laughs> and he just walks off. Of him. Perfect, bro. And that's when our boy, um, our boy, Mr. Roper comes back. I, get out of here. You know, and then you see the, the shot again, like, but this time it's going down the stairs. I've been just kind of running out of the apartment. Like, great stuff. Great stuff.
0: Um, and, and, and the other there's another a good joke in here whenever he basically says, like you know I, it meant nothing. It may as been like shaking hands, and then at the end, like whenever he's leaving, he's like, "You'll excuse me if I don't shake hands shake with your hand. hand." yeah, yeah after this whole thing, he goes back to his to, to his like his town, I'm not sure where they live, I figure where they live. He goes into the he goes into the uh, the Robinson's home and runs into Elaine's room trying to find her and he finds uh Mrs. Robinson there packing her stuff. No, 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 no,
1: no! But before you think about this for a minute now, he broke into their house, dude. <laughs> like, come on, now that that's a, now you're starting to stretch the limits of. So, okay, you know, I'm. I, I'll admit, I'm kind of with them, you know, still, uh, despite everything else. Like, the film wants to still be with him right now, but now he's like breaking and entering, and it's like, okay, m- maybe you were okay with the stalking. But now, now you're literally trying to break into somebody's house, and it's like, oh, okay, like you're starting to lose your. If you haven't already lost your grip on reality, you're really starting to stretch it here. He's literally breaking into somebody's house to try to find a girl that he's stalking, right? And then, of course, he finds Mrs. Robinson there. And then before before we kind of get into that essence of that scene, let's also point out that at this point we start hearing the dee 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 dee. So Mrs. Robinson starts plow becoming the musical. Motif of this next sequence of events, so let's continue with that.
0: Um, so yeah, so he's so at this point, it's another montage of him, uh, basically trying to figure out where Elaine is and how she's gonna be, how he's gonna, you know, where she is, who she's gonna marry, uh, how where they're gonna get married, all of that, right? Um, he he goes to the his his Carl's fraternity house, and like they're all very broy and it's sco- good. It's it's interesting that like bro culture has always been been kind of the same, even in the '60s, where they're like you know uh, oh he, he, last time we saw him we had to go get married probably because he got her pregnant. I mean they did not say that but they basically say that. Um,
1: and then it's like oh make sure he saves a piece for me things like that. Um, So they like, he, hey, where's where's the makeout king getting? No, he goes like, you know, hey, you hear the makeout king's getting married, and then of course, like Ben kind of has to like, kind of just to kind of blend in. He goes like, oh, does anybody know where the makeout king? Instead of calling him Carl, he goes, does anybody know where the makeout king's getting married? I just, you know, I kind of like that little touch that he added there. Like he kind of calls him by his nickname to make it seem like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be at a wedding, you know, at his wedding. Yeah, I know his nickname, so like, just where's the I'm makeout all king getting people, married? Carl is not the freaking makeout king. Come on. I know <laughs> um so real quick, so before this, we kind of need to touch on like the end of that scene at the house, right, so you know, he goes to the house, hoping to find a Mrs Robinson's there she she sees him like hello, Benjamin, like old times, right, but then she walks to pick up the phone, calls the cops, yes, time, I should report a burglary here, you know, and this is mrs full blown heel, Mrs. Robinson, there's no even inkling or trace of sympathy to be felt for her she's now a full-blown heel right so she calls the cops on him you know and she says you know i'm uh she basically tells him that elaine's getting married today you know i'm so sorry that we couldn't invite you ben but the arrangements were so rushed you know but you know she's like you know you, you think you are gonna have time for a drink and then she like right after she says that like we hear the sirens like oh I don't think you have time for that drink after all. But she said it's such a heelish, like bitchy voice and inflection that it's just like, oh, like you, she's. If she wasn't already a full blown heel, she's a full blown heel now. See, that's what the film wants. And, so, and again, this is yeah. where the film loses me because they, they, the,
0: at this point, she was a pretty believable character, and now making her kind of like a cartoon villain, it's like I, I don't buy it really, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I know I. I yeah, I don't buy it it doesn't seem it doesn't jive with me no. um, and then so he finds out where the where the that it's going to happen and I think uh, Santa Barbara he uh, he rushes to Santa Barbara um, he gets to a gas station he tries to find out what the church is uh, by calling around and you know uh, I think is the the you know Carl's father's uh, medical practice or something, or something. yeah um, and then he, he tries to ask, uh, you know, he asks the, uh, the, uh, the gas station attendant where to get, how to get there. And then, and, you know, very famously, like he, he leaves and like, Hey, don't you need any gas father? Cause he's pretending to the reverend on the, on the, on the, <laughs> yeah. the phone. Uh, and, uh, as, as the, uh, as he leaves, he takes off and obviously the, this, the, of course the car starts running out of gas. It was a very good audio cue of the music, uh, starting to slow down as the car slows down.
1: Yeah, I love that sequence. Which, by the way, this this pretty much entire climax was parodied in Wayne's World 2 to to brilliant comedic effect. I don't know if you've seen Wayne's World 2 but they yes, do that whole ending scene like almost shot for shot, and it's like it's so ridiculous, you know, and so lazy, but it's like, but it's just it just uh, Mike Myers' charisma kind of is what like kind of puts it over the top. But um, there's a couple things I want to point out also. um just kind of before we get to this final sequence at the church, right? First thing is um, something that's uh, Seward pointed out in the commentary. Like, we were alluding to earlier um, when we were talking about how, like, what Elaine sees in him right now. Like, it's like after all this, all this that's happened, how could she even see any sort of attraction or feel any sort of love for him, right? So. What he pointed out was, well, in comedy, motivation is hardly clear when it comes to like, you know, why characters do things. Which I don't know if it's necessarily true, but let's just go with that line of thought for a minute, right? What does Elaine see in Ben? Well, according to Suber, who cares? It's a romantic comedy. No, all, we, all, all, all the, all the audience wants to see is the two leads get together. No, who cares about why, uh, what Elaine sees in him? That's no. his, that's his logic. No. No, bullshit. Uh I care. She shouldn't see anything in him
0: because he was a he was a jerk and he he was a jerk to her. He had an affair with her mother and for a long time she thought he raped her mother. Why would she want anything to do with him other than to like screw over her parents? Because she's being forced into this marriage by her parents to this like dorky dude, Mr. Carl the Makeout King. Uh and she that's the only reason she like does what she does at the very end of the film. There's no re- like, there's nothing other than that to like want see to for her to want uh, Benjamin. It's not his looks. It's the,
1: it's his personality. His personality is horrible. Right. No. No. I de- I definitely see what you're saying. I just found it a little interesting that like, he would try to argue something like this. I mean, maybe it was true for for back then, but like now, especially when you the films that come out today, like, the the way they're structured and the way they're kind of paced, it's like... And, like, when you get into some of the more deeper things that, um, that films, like, kind of go into today, you can't really say anymore that, like, you know, there's no motivation to characters in comedies. There's some brilliant comedies, especially some of the more recent ones that have come out, where, like, the characters have clear motivations. It's just the way they get there is funny, right? So it's a little... I don't want to say disingenuous, but I don't think it's a little, it's accurate anymore to kind of say that there's no motivation in comedy. Like that's not true anymore. Maybe it was back then, but like now it's not true. No way is that true. So of course we care about what characters see other characters, especially if they're the protagonists, if they're, especially if they're the romantic leads. Yeah. We want to believe that this is somebody let's say if I'm, let's say if I'm a female, I would agree as to why Elaine likes Ben. Right. Or if we want to go vice versa, I would agree as to why Ben likes Elaine as a guy, right? You want to be able to kind of bridge that gap so that, yeah, you can be with the characters, you know, when they finally get together, when they finally have that moment. You want it to be believable. But it's just not, you know, it's it's just, it kind kind of throws that away as kind of not important when it really should be important, right? So I did want to kind of point that out also. And then something else he said was that in a drama conflict should heighten not weaken as we progress. Now it's a little bit weird with this movie that so when Elaine, you know, comes to his room and they kind of make up and get together again, right? It's like the conflict is gone at that moment. So it's almost like, oh, like the the movie's over. Like, you know, they got together and that's that. So then it's like they have to throw another wrench to the plants to kind of heighten conflict again. That's not really how it's supposed to go. Like conflict should be kind of like something more something that you ease into little by little to the point where like when you get to like the climax, like the the, the conflict is like heightened as far as it's going to go. But it's like almost like a seesaw effect. Like, you know, there's conflict and there's not. And there's conflict again. That there's not, and then finally we have conflict again. Just to kind of wrap up the story, kind of on a high note. So it's a little. It kind of kind of does away with like the the dramatic structure in a way that you kind of have these kind of seesawing or camel hump, you know, emotional things. And I don't know if it necessarily works. Now that I'm really discussing it with you and thinking about it, maybe it's a little. Maybe this could have gone a, a different way, not just, you know, structurally as far as, you know, tone and pacing, but like even with some of the story elements. But I think we'll kind of save that more for the wrap up at the end because we're almost there. We're at the, we're on the home stretch. But, um, yeah, so Ben gets the directions. He finds find out where the church is. He drives to the church. The car breaks down and then he starts running to it. I mean, luckily, he's not too far from the church anymore. But, yeah, he 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 loses his car, runs out of gas. So now he has to dog it all the way to the church.
0: Uh, he gets there uh, And he gets there just in time For her, them to say I do and kiss So it's kind of interesting that he didn't stop the wedding They yep. get married um, and, and To the point where like when he starts banging on the window And everyone turns around Mrs. Robinson says it's too late In a very villainous kind of way You know what I mean uh, So again kind of positioning her As the as the villain of the movie um, And you know she, she, He's pounding on the glass and then she, you know, Elaine starts looking around. She looks at her mother, who's making these distorted, like, ugly faces. Her father's making these distorted, ugly faces. Uh, her new husband is doing the same thing. And then she screams up, Ben! And then that he takes that as his cue to, like, run out and go get her. Gets confronted by Mr. <laughs> Robinson, has a fight with him. Uh, all the other wedding guests come in, and they start to, like, attack him. He pushes them off. Uh, um, you know, Elaine has a confrontation with her mother where she gets slapped uh, twice. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, Ben grabs the cross and swings it like a freaking sword, uh, then locks them all in the church with the, by putting the cross through the doors. They run off into the streets in a very famous shot with him holding her hand as they run across uh, with her in a wedding dress. They get on the they get on an, on a bus that's kind of coming nearby And the last shot in the film, as they get away with this, um, it's a straight on shot of them laughing at what they just did. And then slowly but surely stopping to laugh and then getting a uh, more kind of sobering realization of like, oh, okay,
1: now what? And then the movie ends. So a few things. Number one, I thought the line was Cassandra, not Elaine, that he's screaming. Once again, another uh, another Wayne's World 2 reference there for everybody. Or I thought, isn't it Mrs. Bouvier that he that he screams Mrs. Bouvier? <laughs> There's another. I threw in another Wayne's World 2 and another Simpsons reference. Wow, wow. there you go. It, all within the span of 10 seconds. Beat that, everybody. Um, okay, so a lot to unpack here. Oh, one final question. So who delivered? you punk you crazy punk better murray hamilton or christopher walken that's what i want to know but uh i mean who who could hate christopher walken right so <laughs> i love that guy um anyway um i think i, I actually kind of like christopher walken's version better because it's like i, I feel like that watching murray hamilton do it it feels like rushed and kind of awkward like the way christopher walken does it like you punk you crazy. He has that, like that dramatic pause before he says, "You crazy punk," and it just works. It just works so much better. But anyway, now I'm getting like way off, but anyway, OK, so this, the part of the scene where he locks them, he locks the adults in the church with a cross, by the way, a little on the nose there, Mike Nichols, once again. I think that's probably the last little bit on the nose reference I'm going to use for this show, but yeah little on the nose, right? Um, so now, yeah, we get to the, the, the big scene that everybody debates to this day. The scene on the bus. They're happy. You know, they kind of, they, they you know, score one for the young people, right? You know, you know, down with adults. But then as they start realizing what they just did, what the future, if anything, will hold for that, what the consequences are, And I hate to... Well, you already cursed. You kind of broke that already. But it's like, oh, Now what? And that's where the film just kind of changes complete direction, depending on how you look at it. You know, on one hand, you have the hopeless romantics out there who see nothing wrong with how Ben reacted on any of this from beginning to end. All they see is he got the girl. It's a happy ending. They ended up together. Then there's everybody else that sees no. Maybe this one is one of two things. Either this is more of a reflection of the characters themselves and just kind of realizing like now what do we do? We've done. We've kind of we. Yeah, we got this. We won the battle, right? But The war's not over yet. There's still an uphill battle they have to climb and it's not something that they really thought through. That's one thing. The other way you can look at that too is like, well maybe Mike Nichols is saying something to the youth here. He's maybe he's maybe he's trying to tell them don't bite off more than you can chew. Not necessarily saying, Well, you know, you have to conform to your parents, you have to follow you know, he's not saying that, but I think what he what he's trying to kind of nudge them in is like maybe think things through a little bit yeah you can be free you can be yourself you can kind of go your own path but just kind of just don't hop into things so spontaneously like it's maybe he's trying to kind of bridge a gap between the two generations like yeah you don't have to be you don't have to conform to structure but you still have to at least think things through before you do them you know whereas you know the 60s and the counterculture are more like this we're gonna do what we want when we want it You know, maybe not kind of planning out everything ahead of time. That's part of the charm of it. Maybe he's trying to find a middle ground. He's trying to tell the youth, listen, yeah, it's okay to rebel. It's okay to like not, you know, you don't have to be like your parents, but you got to be something, you know, you got to think things through. You got to have to, got to have a plan for yourself. Now you can get there however you want. The path is what you make of it, but you have to have a, a path of destination, and the tragedy here is these two young people don't. So, what does that say about them? What do you think about this?
0: I think that's good, and it's very profound. If the like previous forty minutes were better, <laughs> um, I, I like what you. I, I like everything you said, and, and it makes sense. But I just can't get over. I can't get over like everything from, from the midpoint on and how horrible Benjamin is
1: for me to like think any profound thoughts about that ending <laughs> which you know in the context of this conversation it's it's understandable I am I absolutely <laughs> get what you're saying Uh, And it's kind of made me kind of realize that too a little bit. Now, it it kind of takes my love for the movie a little bit down a notch because as we're talking about this, I've like seen a lot of these flaws. Like, you know, this wouldn't work in real life or Ben's acting very skeevy here or you know, Mr. Robinson is the real victim in all of this, right? So it's like being able to you know, verbalize this and talk about it makes you kind of realize, you know, this is a far from a perfect movie. Um, But you have to admire not just, just the technical terms, the technical like, you know, um things that the, the the film did, not just with camera angles, with you know cinematography and with all that, but kind of its overall messaging. Maybe not so much how we got there. Let's not focus on that right now. Let's focus on just the just the overall message that Nichols is trying to convey. And just the film itself kind of just kind of tries to push to the audience that like, yes. The times are changing, but maybe Nichols is trying to say, like I said before, have a plan. Does not have to be the plan? Does not have to be, you know, the nineteen fifties plan for success? But you got to have at least some sort of plan. And it's a story about you know loss of innocence. It's a it's a story about kind of trying to be, I guess, attempting. And I think. Now, looking back on it, he he kind of fails miserably attempting to grow into some sort of maturity, becoming a man. Um, But it's also I think it's mainly about just, you know, just a reflection of just the changing times. And, you know, well, you have to kind of read films as, you know, not only, you know, how we see them now in 2019, but as how they were contemporarily in 1967. And this was a huge film that really spoke to the youth back then. And it, it really comes across that way.
0: You know,: um, Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And, and I, I would love this ending. I, if, if they would have done something better than what they did, you know what I mean? Like right. the, the thought of like, the, the, the ending of him running off with her, getting on a bus, and them just like feeling happy and then having the weight of their actions kind of slowly sink in, is a great ending but I don't feel it's earned with what they presented in the film.
1: That's fair enough. I mean, I can't really, like, add to anything else that you said or maybe add to my side. It's just, I mean, I don't want to say I agree to, we're going to agree to disagree on this. I do agree with most of what you said, but it's just, I kind of see the ending as more profound and just kind of symbolically just encapsulating just everything we've just seen. Whereas, like, your flaws with the Ben character kind of take that profoundness kind of away from the ending is what I'm getting. I
0: guess my, here's my, here's my point. That ending works Hmm. with what was happening at the beginning, like with the first half of the film, right? Like that totally works. I feel like it matches, but with that, that second chunk of the film where I feel it kind of goes off the rails. Um, if they had done something different or more uh what am I what what the word I'm looking for? The ending just it just it it, it works it, like if you watch the first half of the film and then for whatever reason up until the point where he goes on a date with Elaine you like were to like pass out and fall asleep until the end of the movie, and then you saw the end of the movie. That wouldn't make sense like that you maybe you wouldn't know like what happened in between, but the 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 tone of the film would match the ending the tone of the ending would match the tone of the whole like first hour. But because of that last forty minutes, it that tone doesn't work anymore. It's not earned. it It doesn't it, they needed to do something different to match the first hour that would have justified that ending.
1: No, like I said, like I, com- I completely get where you're coming from. I absolutely understand it. I just, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm kind of biased with, I still have like that. Um... <clears throat> Excuse me from, because from when you first saw you just, you already noticed the flaws from your first viewing, like me it, and that stuff never hit me when I first saw it the first time, the second time, or even the third time, it wasn't until like, now, this more recent set of showings I had for myself that it's like, oh, I get what Adolfo is going to say. I I know what he's going to say. Like, I already kind of had it pinpointed, right? But it wasn't already obvious to me when I first saw it. And I think I still have kind of that bias for, like, you know, I saw it and I felt like it was, like, almost a perfect movie, like, when I first saw it. And, you know, yeah, I can really admit that it has flaws now. Obviously, there's huge flaws here. But... I still kind of have that, like, nostalgia for, like, oh, well, I remember when I first saw it and I loved it, you know, so maybe it's kind of, that's the, kind of the feeling that's kind of sinking into this, in a way.
0: All right. Well, I, I think that's going to probably wrap up the the overall discussion uh, of the film, unless you have any other notes you want to get to.
1: I mean, not necessarily. Um, just kind of to put a um, put a cap on that final scene, it really is, and this is what Suber pointed out at the end, it really just be, does become, you know, either a romantic or a realist, you know? You're either an optimist or a pessimist. Um, and just kind of based on where you, you fall into those categories is how you're going to interpret the ending. It's not necessarily something that, you know... What's the proper phrasing I want to use for this? It's not necessarily something that you... That the film is uh, outright telling you because it's leaving the ending ambiguous on purpose. But essentially what Super's trying to say is how you see the ending says something about you as a person, if that makes sense. So, um, so yeah, I think people can see it as differently. They can see it as like a story of doubt. They can see it as a story of, you know, maybe the youths aren't as cracked up or that they're cracked up to be. You know, they want to rebel against, you know, the adults, but, I mean, they don't know what they're doing either. You can look at the film that way when it comes to the ending. You can even see it as a film about love, you know, which obviously pretty flawed when you really dissect it, but there's people that see it that way. And then finally, there's this, there's a way that you can look at it, whereas it's a film about human destiny, about fate, about what's meant to be, you know. You can kind of argue, well, I mean, people have argued that, you know, Benjamin kind of going through these lengths to get to Elaine, and then finally at the end, you know, Him going all the way to the church, finding out where she is, and then, you know, just, you know, interrupting the wedding, you know, trying to get Elaine back. It's just him chasing his destiny, claiming his destiny, fulfilling his destiny. Like, it's all meant to be, right? So there's a lot of ways you can really look at this ending to kind of encapsulate the film. But I guess what I'm trying to say at the end is that you're not wrong. You can make arguments for every single one of those endings just based on what happens in the film. Now, some are more flawed than others, obviously, but you can make a case for pretty much every single ending that people have. And how you feel about the film says a lot about you as a person, and we're just going to leave it at that. All right. Um, Yeah, we'll, we'll leave it there.
0: Uh, we'll let you, we'll let our fine folks uh, decide uh, how to how they would view the film. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about its legacy. Uh, it did receive generally positive reviews when it first came out, uh, including uh, Mr. Roger Ebert, who who did call it the best comedy of the year. Um, now in the film's at the film's 30th anniversary he did retract some of the what he felt was good and he now he said he now considered Benjamin Braddock an insufferable creep so <laughs> good on good on uh, Roger Ebert there um that said the movie was a huge mega financial hit. It grossed $100 million, $104 million uh, it, it domestically, and adjusted for inflation, that is around $780 million now in 2019 money. Um, it uh, it was nominated for um, seven uh, Academy Awards for uh, Best Picture, Director, Actor for Hoffman, Actress for Anne Bancroft, Supporting Actress for Katherine Ross, Adapted Screenplay and Cinematography It won one and that was for Best Director for uh, Mike Nichols Uh, It was uh, selected uh, for the um, National Film Registry um, And it has been recognized in many of the AFI lists Uh, In the 100 Movies it was number 7 in 1998 When they did the updated list in 2007 It moved back to number 17 Uh, In 100 Comedies it's number 9 in 100 Love Stories, it's number 15—or, sorry, number 52. Um, Mrs. Robinson is the number six of uh, the 100 greatest songs in movies. And uh, it gained two uh, places in the 100 greatest movie quotes. Uh, number 42 was uh, Plastics, and uh, number 63 was Mrs. Robinson, You're Trying to Seduce Me, which I would flip those. I think that's a more famous line than Plastics. Right. Um, and that's that's its legacy it is we talked about uh, available on criterion, uh, which I think is the press proper way to watch the film um, but if not it's pretty much available at any other uh, online streaming uh, digital platforms that you can buy uh, and that's that's pretty much it for uh the graduate
1: unless you have any other any other thoughts um, let me see i uh, I don't have thoughts per se, but I do have some interesting notes that I took. Um, during that class on the film, um, I wrote here, let's see, during its initial release, it was the third highest grossing film in U.S. history behind Gone with the Wind and The Sound of Music. I don't know if that's really true, but that's what I was told. and I apparently wrote it down because I felt it was important. And I don't know if this little bit of data is true also. It says 74% of his audience were teenagers. Only 4% were adults. Hmm, interesting. Um, I don't know where that came from, where that citation came from, but apparently it's it's a it's something you know, so I'm just gonna throw that out there um and yeah, so yeah that's that's pretty much the graduate. We pretty much said everything we had to say about it um, so there you go, all right, so let's go ahead and decide
0: what our next movie will be, and we are going to bust out the random movie generator, so right. let's fire it up. And find out what our next movie is. Okay. And our next movie. Aha! Well, I was going to say it's our first family film. That's not true because we did The Wizard of Oz, uh, I think, last year or the year before. I can't remember. Uh, But it is our first animated film. Uh, It is our first Disney animated film. And it is actually the first full-length Disney
1: animated film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. All right. Now, um, so a little bit of a backstory here, folks. In my frugal attempt to expand into podcasting more than I probably should have, I did attempt to try to start a Disney podcast, um, kind of going through the history of Disney animation. That show did not last too long. Um, unfortunately. It, it, it's something that I, I kind of wanted to really get off the ground, but unfortunately, just, like, you know, with scheduling, like, you know how these things go, something like just ended up, we had to keep canceling so many times, and then we ended up just stopping completely. Um, But I did end up doing a show on Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I want to go back and re-listen to that now to prepare for this, as far as get maybe a couple of more uh, viewings of the film itself. I do have it on Disney Blu-ray. Um I think I bought the, um, what I I think I told you the story, Adolfo. Um, when I started doing the Disney show, I started kind of buying up all these old, um, these old Disney films on Blu-ray to kind of have for a collection so I can revisit, right? I ended up finding the, um, the original. Cause remember, Snow White was the very first Disney Blu-ray, if I'm not mistaken, right? That was the very first Blu-ray yes. that Disney ever did. I never bought it in its initial release. It's trying to track it down afterwards. This is before they re-released it as part of the signature collection, which they did like last year. Before this, it was just that one copy, that one release that was now out of print. So, of course, I had to go into freaking eBay to find it. And I think, and this is no joke, I think I paid about 80 bucks for that Blu-ray. Sounds about right. Sounds about right, yeah. Now, I don't remember who was already, it might have been even already used, like pre-owned. $80 pre-owned, bro. But I thought, oh, this is not a greedy corporation. They're not going to re-release these things over and over again. How naive I was, So there you go. So yeah, so i'm I'm excited to revisit this one again. This is obviously, it's a classic and not just Disney animation, but just in animation and in film total. So um, it'll be it'll be interesting to kind of dissect this one
0: honestly, this is a movie that I think I can do with no preparation tomorrow because my daughter has this movie. And if you know anything about little kids, They watch movies over and over and over and over and over again. So I'm pretty familiar with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, just from my daughter having watched it recently enough and often enough that I could honestly probably recite the
1: film to you right now. And I can attest to that because my sister, like when she was, I, I think when she was like 10, 11, 12 years old, for some reason, I don't know how this happened, and I'm sure this is part of your, you know, essential films, because we'll talk about it one day. She watched Grease every single day for about a month. Every single day she watched, she came home from school, put in Grease, and watched it every single day for a month. Now, of course, having that in the background for me personally, I now have that film literally memorized like the back of my own hand. So... (laughs) um so yeah so that's this, so for those who think oh we're crazy no this is a thing that people do so um i'm sure like you know people our age have had kids that have done this at some point maybe not for a straight month but yes yeah, this is a real thing folks like that's how i memorized the film grease unintentionally but yeah make it that what you will <laughs> All right, so with that, uh, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs will be our next
0: episode, Uh, but before we go, a little bit of plugs here. EssentialFilmsPodcast.com is the website. EssentialFilmsPodcast at gmail.com is the email address. Uh, Like the Essential Films on Facebook and follow at Essential Films on uh, Twitter and Essential Films Podcast on Instagram. Uh, Please like, rate, and review and subscribe to us on iTunes and uh, please listen to our other show, Force Perspective uh, with the Force Perspective Twitter is FPMoviePodcast, and uh, Mark, let's t- you can take it from here.
1: Okay, well, like you already plugged, FP, at FPMoviePodcast is our Twitter handle for Force Suspective. We're also on Facebook, so look for the Force Suspective Movie Podcast on Facebook. Like and join our group there. Um, my personal Twitter is at SportsGuy515. You can follow me there and all of my wacky uh, thoughts and antics. Um, and then also for all you there who happen to be wrestling fans, I also do a wrestling podcast with uh, Mike. You may know him as Denon from Force Perspective as well. Um, at, it's uh, called Planet Jobbers and our Twitter handle for that is at RL Planet Jobbers. Uh, that shows actually streamed over on SoundCloud.com forward slash Planet Jobbers. You can check out all of our archived episodes there. Um, That's pretty much it. Um, So for Force Perspective next episode, we're kind of trying to tie into this episode of what we did The Graduate into 500 Days of Summer because, like, we kind of already alluded to at the beginning of this show, this film, The Graduate, does kind of play into the development of the Tom character in 500 Days of Summer and plays an important part in his, like, the way he sees the relationship with Summer. So it's a really interesting um, aspect to kind of dissect, now that we've really talked in length about The Graduate, this might be our longest show we've ever done for this, for Essential film. Yeah, this is um, a
0: long show. Um, yeah, I think maybe longer, the longest show we did was Gone with the Wind, but this is pretty long.
1: Well, and it's funny because Gone with the Wind is like a three-hour, four-hour movie. This is like an hour and a half, and we spent yeah. like three hours on this. So I we dissected this a lot. Funny. Yeah, but, and, you know, speaking of that, you know, the way we kind of went into The Graduate, you know, all that kind of plays a part in the character Tom for 500 Days of Summer. So it's going to be really interesting to kind of unpack all of that again to kind of talk about that film. So I'm really excited to do that because that's, like I said, it's it's my favorite rom-com. So I'm really, and I just love every opportunity I can to talk about it. So I'm really excited for this episode of Force Perspective coming up that we can kind of tie these two episodes, you know, Force Perspective and Essential Films kind of together as a little double feature in a way. All right. So,
0: look, uh, look forward to that. Uh, and with that, I think uh, we're going to get out of here. So, uh, for Mark, I'm Adolfo. Uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, here's to you, Mrs. Robinson.